Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Ward, a doof media podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss Ward while those return to the world of parahumans. My name is Matt Freeman, and this is my semi-similar clone backup that has named itself Scott. Hello, Scott. First imperative, podcast. Uh, yeah. Se- second, second imperative, kill humans? <laughs> This is the weekly podcast where Matt and I eagerly dive into Wild Bull's world of disappointing clone sons, optimistic bird brains, and alien-based death powers as we analyze and interpret this ongoing web serial. This week, we finally wrap up Arc 10 Polarize with two interludes, 10.y and 10.z. First up, the mystery of Chris is finally solved. And then we get just a delightful little chapter with our favorite small bird man. Matt, what did you think of these two interludes? Well, these are fantastic. I mean, we've been waiting for the Chris reveal forever. Um, it certainly doesn't disappoint. It's a great uh, it's a great chapter, too. I think you're going to have a lot to say about how this reveal was set up. And um, I guess foreshadowed is the word, but but how the how the tracks were laid for this for this reveal. Um, and then, of course, everyone, everyone loves Aiden. It's just so heartwarming. Yeah, it really is. Um, yeah, I think we're going to have a lot to say structurally about the Chris chapter, because I think not only is is things and have things been laid since the book started about Chris, but I think just the execution of the reveal was handled in a way that just like I, I, I just love structurally the design of the chapter, not even talking about like the prose itself, but just how things are laid out and when they are laid out. Um, I, I have a lot, I took a lot of notes on that. So, um, hopefully it's a good conversation. I'm very excited to talk about both of these chapters and, and wrap up this arc. Yeah. Before we do that though, a few quick announcements. Voting for the fifth quarterly fan art contest is now open. So everybody's got their submissions in. So now the voting is underway and winners will be announced on doofmedia.com on Christmas day. Yeah, I think we're closing that vote Christmas Eve. So um, I know we had some people out there that, well, they probably won't be listening to this, but we had some people out there that were afraid of spoilers in some of the the art designs that we got in. So they didn't want to vote just yet. So uh, catch up and then vote. But if you're listening to this, you've already caught caught up. Just just vote. Yeah, just vote. They were, they were great. They were so they were so yeah, lovely. They make me I really happy. enjoyed everything. Yeah. Um, next announcement, uh, you generous folks out there have donated uh, to our Patreon in su- uh, uh, to a sufficient level that you've reached our Doof Plays goal. So Doof Plays is here. Yeah, I'm very excited about this. We've been talking about this for a couple months now. Um, we were doing stuff in the background and then we started getting closer to the goal. So we were being those annoying guys that have been kind of pushing it to you guys, um, a lot the last few weeks. And you really helped us across the line. We appreciate every single one of our patrons to make this happen. Um, we are kind of rolling out this, us talking about video games thing, um, us streaming games. We're, we're trying to do some interactive stuff. I think we've got, um, we've got a Starcraft tournament, planned um this is just going to be a, a patron only tournament for our first time around because we didn't want to deal with hundreds of people yeah. <laughs> that, that could possibly enter so we're we're kind of scoping it small and then once we get a, a feeling on on how it can work we can expand that out but we've got a lot of cool stuff planned and we're so thankful that uh, you guys have gotten us there it's very fitting at the the end of this year it's been such a great year for us and at the end of this year we we're, we're moving into a whole new thing and i'm really excited about it yeah, it's, it is really good timing. You're right. 
And I'm excited about the tournament. Can't wait to get eliminated in the first round. Me too. But that means we can cast the later round games. Yeah. Where right. I can pretend like I know about StarCraft and, and be talking about strategy, even though I don't know how any of that works. Yeah, this is going to be so fun. Uh, and then final announcement, we're taking off next week. So this is the last show of 2018. And um, Scott, why don't you talk about 2019? Yeah, so basically, um, you know, when we did the Worm show, it had a definitive end, right? Like we knew kind of exactly when we were going to end. And it was about, I think it was this week last year that we did the epilogue. And I think we did one more um mailbag show in early January and then started right into Ward. So so we're basically coming up on our first full year of covering this book. And in that vein, um, we're kind of looking for feedback from you guys. This is this has been an ever evolving show. We had some ideas what we thought it was going to be when we started and we've changed and shifted those as we've gone. Um, but we want to hear what you want more out of it. Are you happy with what you're doing? Do you want something else? Um, shorter episodes? I, people were joking about how the only one that actually wants shorter episodes is me. Um, <laughs> everyone else seems to want longer episodes. Um but if you want shorter episodes, if you want us to cover different things, if you want to see more from the community, if it, what what do you want? What do you come to the show for and what do you want out of the show? We're looking to get that feedback because we like doing this. We have a lot of fun doing this. But I think our our, our end goal is to make a show that you guys want to listen to. So we want some feedback so you can you know contact us on Discord. Uh, if you're a patron, you can contact us via email. Uh, gotwormpod at gmail dot com. You can Talk to us on Twitter at GotWormPod. Just reach out to us and, and let us know, you know, what, what 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 can we change? What do you want us to do better? Um, what do you like that we've been doing? That kind of stuff. That's just, it's just it feels like a good time just to ask for feedback. Yeah, it can be hard to get perspective on what we're doing when we're just doing it every week and we fall into kind of the formula of it. Right. So um, what we would really appreciate is your perspective on it. Yeah, we get it is it it is interesting that it feels very like. It, not formulaic in a bad way, but just like we've been doing this for two years, one year on this show and you just kind of get into the rhythm and you're like, OK, it's it's Sunday night. Got to start pulling my notes together. It's Monday. Got to start preparing the chapter. And it's just like you get into that rhythm. Yeah, so right. we can't see it from y'all's perspective. Yeah. You're just like, this is the way it's done. Yep. Like, well, <laughs> yeah. that's yeah. All right. Moving on into the community spotlight section where we read what people wrote from last week's thread. And the discussion question, if you recall, was physical descriptions of complex scenarios are a particularly challenging thing to write. Highlight a passage where Walbo successfully conveys a complex physical situation in his stories. And uh, so we got a wide variety of answers. I'm just going to go, we're just going to like kind of remark on some of them. We're probably not going to, we're not going to quote any of the scenes because that could potentially take forever. Um, but first of all, uh, Shinichi 07 highlights Chevalier's duel with Behemoth. It's this complex situation that involves Chevalier crawling out of bed, trudging toward the fight, being assisted by Defiant. Um, and so, so there's there's physical complex things happening, but it's, but it's also very powerful emotional writing um, and just overall a great scene on top of that. Yeah, I, it's funny. I think no matter what kind of question we ask, that scene continues to come back and and be a choice for people. And I think that's just because the scene does so many things well that it has it has really won people over and people love talking about that scene. It is a very powerful it is is this like, you know, Worm is a is a fairly, you know, depressing book at times. Bad things keep happening. There There are very few moments where you just get to like, you know, just 
celebrate and fist pump just like an an unquestioning victory like there's no like it someone did something good there's no kind of like worrying grayness to it and you can just be happy um and i think this is one of those moments yeah i agree it's it's a big fist pump all right next we have number wang man who points to the aftermath of contessa's fight with fault lines crew we have no idea what actually happened we only see the injured team members it conveys the intimidating effect of contessa the boogeyman that's a really good answer too. Um, I remember that that scene very distinctly. I think at that point we still didn't understand what Contessa's power was, right? Yeah, we just knew her as this like this chick that was just there, kind of in the background, always intimidating. Um, and then we kind of get a first glimpse of what she's capable of. Yeah, right. And and you know we get. I think this is a good answer because it's discussing the physical um, consequences where people are in the room, like the, what's been done to them, their injuries, etc. So yeah. Uh, blue harbinger discusses Taylor's first fight with Oni Lee, specifically how it uses short snappy paragraphs and how the readers are always playing catch up with what Oni Lee is doing as he flits around the battlefield, taking on multiple opponents at once. Um, they also point to Victoria's fight with lung and the pharmacist describing the writing as bombastic. And they actually kind of, um, contract these two, uh, sorry, that's not the right word, contrast these two uh, things because basically they're pointing out that um, the tone of the Oni Lee fight is this frenetic, fast-paced thing, whereas the fight, uh, Victoria's fight with the pharmacist is is um, um, slower and kind of more focusing on kind of the uh, epicness of it where you've got these roiling fire clouds and she's flying between them and it's, and it's awesome in a different way. Yeah. I like that. And I, I like that contrast too, because I think, you know, one of the measurements of a strength of a writer can be, can you write different scenarios in ways that feel like it's the same voice, but also have a distinct, you know, feel and tone to them. So um, I think that's a really good way of, of pointing out the strengths of this writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anti Chris gestures implicitly at the first part of the Chris interlude, which uh, <laughs> is very is is a is a great choice. Like we keep doing this by accident, like purely by accident. Well, maybe not. You were the one that came up with this question, so you had read the Chris interlude, so maybe you you did this by design. But um, every time we have a question, there's something that happens in. Uh, the next chapter or two that kind of slots perfectly into as an answer to that. And then this, the Chris interlude was no exception to that. The physical battle um, between Chris and, and what we learn later is a breed clone or a breed 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 um, is, is a great example. Of that. Yeah. yeah. I, I, uh, I guess maybe it was partially by design. I remember noticing that, that the, the brawl that Victoria has is, is a fun a fun fight. And then yeah. when I, when I read the next chapter, I was like, well, that also works really well. Um, but basically, yeah, it, it's, well, I, the reason I phrased it that way, anti-Chris didn't actually say the first part of the Chris interlude. They just kind of said like, is Scott caught up? Cause there's a part that I kind of want to talk about. Um, <laughs> and I can't imagine a better example than, uh, the, the Chris, uh, proto form fighting the, the breed creature. Yeah. And <laughs> someone else was like, hey, remember that guy that said they didn't do well with body horror? I wonder how they're going to do with this chapter. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was great. Yeah. Sarah Penguin points to Eden Fuxter uh, trying to make herself look human uh, with her creepy garden of experiments. 
Yeah, I like that. That that is a very a lot of very physical description. It's not necessarily action sequences, but it is a lot of you know physicality and in, in what Eden looks like. Yeah, and, and there's also parts where you need to understand the movement of characters through this this maze of of whispering, shifting body parts, and and the writing conveys that pretty well too. Yeah. Next up, we have Fip Industries, who uh, doesn't find Wild Bo to be particularly great at at physical descriptions. They kind of disagree with us here. Um, they say Wild Bo is a literalist and uses few metaphors. Yeah. Um, to to the credit of the community, uh, I think I think people didn't like jump on on this guy and like <laughs> downvote him to hell and, and yell at him or anything. I think I think there was some pretty pretty good discussion that this question posed. And I think it's because Fip Industries, although I, I don't necessarily agree with him, um, argues his point well enough to where it doesn't just seem like like he's shitting all, all over Wild Bo's re- writing for no reason. Um, I, I, I do agree that that this writing is is often like very literal, um, especially in some of the fighting like there the, the, he doesn't really drop a lot of metaphor in the action sequences. Um, that doesn't bother me. Because I think for me in action sequences, the most important thing is clarity um, and understanding who's where and what's going on. So I, I like my language to get flowery and meta and metaphor rich when we're talking about themes and we're like pushing the narrative along. But when it comes to just these two people are fighting, um, I, I want I want to understand that. So I appreciate the the literal nature of the of the text in that in those cases yeah it, i mean it's interesting i think it, it, it's an empirical empirical question like does wild Bo not use metaphor very often like I, I i wonder if you could do some kind of analysis on like metaphors per thousand words you know um, <laughs> yeah because he certainly uses them sure um, yeah but uh but 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 not when he's trying to describe like a complex interaction of of physical objects um yeah and maybe he does that sometimes, but I can't think of any off the top of my head. And I think this is, I mean, I, I pulled this answer out just as, you know, as it was, because I think it's just a matter of preferences and, and aesthetics. Yeah. Like I, I don't like, I wouldn't say that there should be more metaphors and, and I certainly wouldn't hold it against while though that he doesn't use metaphors, but um, it's, it's interesting. I, I just thought it was interesting that um, people can, can have, preferences where they're just like I, I think this is not good writing because xyz and yeah. i'm just like i don't really care about xyz but yeah everyone has their own uh, uh framework so yeah and and i love that in this community those opinions can exist um without it having to be like a huge fight yeah and i think it all it all comes to you know how you approach the subject and, uh, and i appreciated that this answer approached it you know with um well thought out reasons for their perspective and yeah um, that's great guys. Let's, yeah. let's, let's do that. I love, yeah. I love that we can do that. Yeah. Continue to be nice to each other. Yes. Yes. Alternative arrival gives a mention to, um, uh, so basically I'm just going to kind of, Oh, you have to do a twig thing, don't you? Yeah. So, so basically they, yeah. Alternative arrival mentions the movements made by a certain twig character. Um, I'm just going to say her name starts with H and writing arm mentions another specific scene from twig uh which is actually the scene that i was thinking of uh vis-a-vis the the how wildbo uses um horror and and dark horrible things question from i think it was last week 
Um, but I'm not going to say what that scene was because even if I say the barest mention of it, it's going to mess with people who are reading Twig. So, yeah, that's it. Yeah. And and I haven't read a thing of that. So and w- there's no expectation on here that we would have Twig spoilers. This is not we don't have Twig. No, So we do not. I'm, I'm intentionally not saying any Twig things. So, yeah. but you know, what's cool. I mean, it's cool for me, a person that hasn't read the story to know and, and, and to kind of in the back of my mind, be aware of the fact that um, there's a character in this story that I haven't read that I know nothing about that has some great physical descriptions that I have to look forward to. So I all of this is meaningless to me, but uh, it, it's going to go, you know, in the back of my brain somewhere. Yeah, and, uh, it'd be and, back sometime in the future. And you'll use it as fuel to make impossibly accurate predictions. <laughs> No one's no one's prediction was as impossibly accurate as the one that came true in this episode. That's true. So, that's true. And that was not mine. Um, Beard of Valor cites six different scenes. Uh, we're just going to mention the first one because uh, we don't want this this section to take the, the 30 minutes it normally does. Um, but they mentioned Taylor's mind being partially knocked out during her early trial mission with the wards and her power going on autopilot and tying everybody to things with spider silk. I think that's that's a really great... I remember that scene very distinctly. I do. Uh, you know, it's so funny. Like, we've been in this book so long and in this book so deeply that I kind of have shoved worm to a different part of my brain. Um, and, and then I read questions like this, or answers like this, rather, and, and it all comes back to me. And, and yeah. the, the feeling that I got when, yeah, she's, like, flitting in and out of consciousness and she sees her bugs doing things and she's, like, doesn't have the strength to stop it and... And it, it, people are getting worried. It's, it is really a great moment and it's really well described. Yeah. 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 It's funny because if you asked me cold, like um, describe what happened when Taylor uh, was, um, you know, going on her trial mission with the wards, I would I would do pretty bad. But like once something primes you with a couple details, then suddenly the floodgates open and you can remember a lot more. I just think that's interesting how yeah. memory works. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there were a couple of uh, very interesting general comments, not not related to the discussion question that I wanted to mention. Um, Blue Melon five 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 says that uh, they basically point out something which I think is um, valid, which is that Victoria kind of thinks of Carol as Mom Carol, and then sometimes as Kate Mentor Carol, and her opinions toward Kate Mentor Mentor Carol are much more positive than her opinions toward mom carol and yeah i mean she doesn't she doesn't literally think of them using different names <laughs> but like there, there's a clear delineation between the two and and she when she's thinking of carol in a cape context there's usually not any of the baggage along with it you know yeah i, I think this was in response to our talk about um how the recycler uh capes and and the fact that she got the third hand information from her mom and maybe that was why she was hesitant to uh to to spread it on is because it came from her mom um and i think they do have a very good point here um she she very casually mentions things she learns from her mom um and, and it and there is not the baggage the baggage of her mom being a terrible mom to her does not seem to come to the 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 cape training part of her life or or part of it at least um yeah, there there are some very specific moments in the cape training that are tied to you. You teaching me this was actually you being a bad mom. But for the most part, the advice that the functional, useful advice and knowledge she gets from her mom to help in her cape world is not something that she has that baggage to you. So I think I think that's a very good point. Yeah. Um, and I, I can't disagree with it. Yep. 
All right. Lastly, we have SNES-C that reminds us that people not having eye holes is a thing with all the Foresight capes, not just... um, I just forgot. I just blanked on his name. Why did I just blank on his name? Yeah. It's a weird name. Yeah. Um, But I would interject. That still doesn't mean that he's not Operator Red. That's true. That's true. So I guess it's just an illusion that they can't see out of their mask. Yeah, I mean, I would, they really can. I would guess that one of them has like is a power grantor who has some kind of sensory power they can, they can grant, and it still it wouldn't make sense how he could see inside the bubble of no powers. True, Matt. I mean, he just has to take it off. I think. Yeah, but we didn't see that. We didn't. Look, but we did not see that. That's true. But <laughs> you have it's you've done this to me, and I will never be the same. No, good. <laughs> All right. So we begin chapter 10.y with gut-wrenching body horror. Hooray! And it only gets worse from here. Our POV, uh, a character whose narrative voice is strangely devoid of the kinds of contextual clues we usually use to infer the kind of person whose head we're in, struggles as a chittering monster tries to crawl down his throat. The writing is rich with tactile textures, movement, and physical sensations. In the fight, the monster destroys our character's jaw and his mouth. Yeah, I I, I love what you said about it. I, tactile texture, movement and physical sensations. I really liked those words. It, it, I, I agree that like it's 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 rough. It's disgusting, but in like a great kind of way. Yeah. Um, the writing really sells you on the grossness of the moment. I love the description of the sandpaper feel of the scales that even going down, they're kind of rough and sandpapery, but reversed they catch and it's ripping his jaw apart. Um, it, it's this, it's so gross and disgusting. And you're like immediately like you, you don't really understand what's going on yet, but you're immediately invested in it because it's just so kind of viscerally horrifying. Right. Um, It's a great start. You know, a lot of this body horror just does not work on me. Like just a lot of body horror in general just doesn't work on me, Um, especially through text. But this was one where I was like, yep, that's that's horrifying. Just something (laughs) trying to crawl its way down your throat and you're trying to pull it out and and fight it. And it's it's got hooks so it can't be pulled out. Yeah. Um, Absolutely disturbing and and terrifying and immediately makes you sympathetic to this point of view. Um, so we gradually come to understand what our point of view character is uh, incrementally. At first you think it's fighting a monster that's like large, like as large as a person. But then we realize that our POV is actually small. And then we learn that he has one arm and one flipper. And I think I think it suggested that he has like a huge head relative to his body. Um, but what's evident is that Whatever he is, he's born knowing how to fight. He's born knowing that he's supposed to tear off limbs and gouge for eyes, even though he doesn't like recognize anything in his world. Yeah. What what I what I really love about this is the book has kind of primed us to expect this to be a a Chris interlude. Uh, The last chapter ends with this fuck moment related to Chris where we see that and then we immediately see that the next chapter is an interlude and then so your mind kind of knowing how the structure of the story works makes that mental leap before the book actually tells you it and i think wild Bo uses the fact that people are going to make that assumption um as a weapon in telling the story he knows 
we expect it. So he can be a little more cagey with the reveal than he normally is. He can he can hold that beat a little longer. He can hold the the mystery a little longer than he normally does. Um, I I couldn't help but compare this to the moment earlier in the arc when he does a little uh, reveal and trickery with the the television show and uh, the video game. And I I had some problems with how that that was um used there but here i think i think it works because behind all this confusion behind all this mystery as it slowly you know comes to reveal itself is this base assumption in the back of your head that oh this is probably a chris interlude um and i think i think that that base feeling kind of permeates the text in a way that i just found delightful mm-hmm. yeah yeah that that's that's interesting because you know we're also like like where my head was when i started the chapter was like this kind of lines up with what Chris told the team was his trigger event or, or right, his, right. His, his first memory rather, but not really like you very quickly are like, no, he he's like a small weak thing without any fighting capability, which is not what he told the team. And yeah. and then it just kind of goes off from there where you're just like, no, he, he was completely lying to them. This is nothing to do with, with what he said. Yeah. And that's what I mean by wild Bill uses the fact that we know, it's going to be Chris is is this, it does kind of sort of line up to the story and therefore the differences in the story, um, the ways in which this is different from what we expected kind of shine a little more brightly because we were expecting it to be something else. Um, and I think that that allows it to draw attention to that. And, and, and even, even through the confusion when you're not exactly sure where this is, when this is what's going on, you have that, that through line of the story as you think it's going to be, and then the story as it is, is made more obvious by it. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. So yeah, uh, this, this fetal creature, he's, he's born knowing how to survive and pretty much nothing else. After killing the monster that's trying to kill him, he crawls inside its shell to hide. Yeah. The, the whole, um, basically this chapter is kind of, you know, permeated by this, survive migrate download motif the structural motif that brings us through uh, at least this timeline of the story um and i think it gives structure to a chapter that jumps around a lot and i think it's a really great idea to kind of to anchor the story to this this motif of um his his instinct instinctual drives i think it's a really good idea yeah this is very very complex chapter structurally um yeah i mean we're gonna hit we're going to hit all of that, but yeah, this, this idea of breaking it into the different, the different drives that he's being motivated by, it brings us to a much greater understanding of where he started out, how he got here, and now what are his goals? Yeah, I completely agree. And, and what, before we move on, I just want to talk about the, the fight between these two monsters a little bit, between the, the, the monster that is Chris and this, this breed bug we think this is Chris, right? But we're not totally sure. But even even in this thing, we we get this understanding of why Chris is so superior. We see why he wins and why he's going to keep winning as he goes through the chapter. The monster he's fighting doesn't learn. It doesn't adapt. And Chris isn't like that. Chris, like even in this early stage, he strategizes, he outmaneuvers his opponent and he wins. And I think this is kind of setting a general idea that goes through the rest of the chapter of, of Chris as this person that, um, is not going to, is going to learn and adapt and change in ways that, uh, the, the 
people that are trying to, to control him and trying to defeat him don't expect. Um, and I, I, I like this is why he doesn't just become a lab rat rep replica. This is why he becomes something more than that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that. I mean, it, it, it on top of all of that, I think it makes you endeared toward this yeah. underdog. I mean, it's an ultimate underdog, right? It's it's a poor, sad, like orphaned infant creature that its first moment of life is having to fight for its life against a horrifying monster. Right. And and then hiding inside the shell of that monster um, to to sort of borrow its strength in a certain way, which is kind of what he does with his power, actually. If you Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, I just like this bit. Uh, it wasn't that the figures were large, he realized, but that he was small. They were covered in protection like he was, but it was made to fit their form, covering every part of them while moving easily. His protection limited him as much as it walled off the outside world. This was their world. Small meant vulnerable. Vulnerable meant that it was best to stay quiet. Quiet while they killed. Quiet while they struck him with the blade, not to kill, but to move. So this all tells us that this creature doesn't really know what it is. Humans appear alien to it. Uh, and even when we suspect we're watching, you know, maybe Defiant and, and or maybe just some random humans kill breed parasites, our POV doesn't realize that, doesn't understand what it's seeing. Um, so Chris, this this creature, you know, waits amid the detritus of the oil rig battle and then crawls away when he spots his chance. Yeah, this whole thing reminds me most of the Brutus interlude from back in worm and to a lesser extent, uh, the way Kepri was at the very end of the book where wild Bow is basically using, um, writing to describe something from the point of view of a character that doesn't really understand what they're seeing, but, um, we, the audience do, and we need to. And I think I said this when I was talking about it back then, and I'll go ahead and say it again here. Um, I think this is something that's actually way more difficult to do than it seems when you're just sitting down to read it. Right. Like, I think this is like a, a line you have to skirt like the, like the, the the degree of difficulty here, I think, is is really high that you have to um, stay true to your your point of view. So tell this from the, the point of view of someone who really honestly doesn't understand this stuff. But you have to convey meaning to your readers. The readers have to understand on some level what is going on. And so you're kind of writing with your hands tied behind your back. You're kind of limiting the words you can use. And I think this this whole passage threads that needle beautifully. I mean, like, look, look at look at this passage here, Mac, Matt, Matt. He says he could see their faces, see how the sounds were huffed out and mashed into shapes with lips like his own mangled lips, with teeth that were intact and with tongues like the one he used to suckle. This is talking about people just talking. <laughs> they're just they're just speaking. Um, but it's used in this this wonderful language that both conveys exactly what Chris does and doesn't understand, but also still set at the end of the day to us is, oh, they're 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 talking. Yeah, <laughs> they're talking to each other. Right. And and it's I, I love that bit, too, because it's very clear. I also like this word suckle because it it you know, it invokes like the suckling of a baby. Uh, on on his mother's yeah. milk, and he's talking about suckling on the inside of an alien monster that came out of a dude's asshole. <laughs> um, and that's where that th- this is his beginning. This is his tragic, sad, terrible yeah. beginning. Yeah, and I think I think you're so at the end of this chapter, Chris says something that is 
objectively terrible, right? It is a terrible thing to say. It is a terrible thing to imply that you'd be willing to do this thing to someone. But I think we need to pay attention to what the chapter is doing with him up until this moment um, and how the chapter is showing, you know, what kind of person he is and what kind of things he's gone through. And and I'm not, I'm not trying to defend the thing he said. I just I just think that it's more complicated than that. We're going to get to that when we get to the end of the chapter. But I think the fact that we start him off on this this terrible, awful beginning matters. Certainly have to view it in context of everything else. And yeah. and I don't think we can just take it at face value. So, um, yeah, then we flash forward uh, and, you know, I'll remark here as we leave this section that we jump around in time quite a lot. I would say there's three timelines, basically. There's feral mutant baby timeline, there's Chris timeline, and there's Labrat <laughs> timeline. And, of course, Labrat timeline is the first one chronologically, and then feral mutant baby, and then Chris. Uh, but now we're flashing forward to the Chris timeline. Yeah, and this is what I was talking about earlier when I talked about the structural decisions around this chapter and why they they help it to work. Um, this decision to jump around like this, like it's it's brilliant. And when you look at it, it's it seems almost required to me. Like I said earlier, going into this interlude, we think this is probably Chris, but we don't really know for sure. And the the, the job of the story is to tell us that at some point, if it wants us to definitively know, yes, this is Chris. It needs to actually, at one point, tell us that. Um, and I think time jumping to that Chris timeline that you talked about accomplishes that, while also doing a bunch of other stuff that we'll get into as we we talk about that in a minute. Um, I, I can see a version of this chapter where the feral mutant baby timeline is just continuous, like we don't jump out of it, we just start from the beginning of it and end at the end. Um, and it it wouldn't work as well, because I think you wouldn't have the definitive, yes, this is absolutely 100% Chris, and therefore the reveal that Chris is Lab Rat wouldn't land as well, because you would expect it, you would assume it, but the book hasn't told you it yet. Um, so we have to know, in order for that reveal to work the way I think the book wants it to, we have to know for sure, 100%, yes, this is Chris. And I think the by its very natural nature, the feral mutant baby timeline has no way of doing that. It has no way of conveying that information to us. It would be breaking the rules of the point of view of the character to convey that information to us. Um, so we jump ahead instead and we yeah. do it there. And I think it's just it's it's a brilliant decision to do it. Um, and it, it makes the things that that I think the chapter is trying to do work. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I, I think there are many things it's trying to do. You know, the other one that jumps to my mind immediately is is sort of build this case that um that that Chris has very complicated reasons for mm -hmm. why he is the way he is and as you say if it were just told linearly then you might get it but it wouldn't have the emotional punch that it has uh when it's told the way that the story kind of lays it out in a much more dramatic fashion. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um so yeah. We, we open up in, in the group, the group meeting, and it says the rest of the group was paying attention to him now, eyes trying to get past the shell he directed around himself, see parts of him he wasn't comfortable revealing. He trusted Ashley's cold, uninterested look more than he trusted Kenzie's small smile and wide eyes. He was glad for the eye patch he wore because it meant he didn't see Kenzie staring and studying him. 
Nothing before, Chris said, shrugging. He wouldn't tell them about the bonfire, the bugs, the quarantine crew. So I just absolutely love this bit here, you know, just everything about this. So, so first of all, Chris is still hiding in a shell, still peering out, wary and paranoid of the people studying him, just like when he was born, just like when he was lab rat too. Yeah. And the text tells us, you know, casually that Chris remembers the bonfire, the bugs, the quarantine crew. So this is Chris, obviously we're the same character. Um, so, you know, we generally see from his thoughts in this section that he reflexively withholds everything, uh, specifically because he's afraid of his background being traced. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I love the clarity with which this part of the chapter is, is doled out to us. We were just talking about the fact that this jump forward, the one thing it definitely needs to do is tell us definitively that the, the feral mutant baby we just saw is Chris. Um, we can assume it, but you know, interludes have their own rules to them, right? Like, like sometimes you jump around an interlude and it actually does move between characters. It doesn't just because you have a character in one section doesn't necessarily mean that's going to be the same character in the next section. But if we look at this, the first part of this thing, it is definitively telling us that it is definitively saying it's using the the same shell imagery and it is saying uh, the bonfire, the bugs, the quarantine crew. It is, it is very explicitly t- saying that those things we just saw this person and it so it is very clear and and it's it's like intentionally so right like this is this is one of the things that this section's trying to accomplish yeah and of course that chris now knows what those things are right right yeah and this, this section's really brief like we cut back to your feral mutant baby timeline very quickly after this there's only a few paragraphs long um but but it is it is doing it is doing that one thing it is establishing yes that person was Chris, but it is also, as you said, starting to get us an idea of who Chris is and why he is the way he is and and the the reasoning for why he behaves the way like we're, we're kind of seeing his behavior that we've seen throughout the story. We're starting to understand the reasoning behind it. And I think the way that's kind of slowly doled out to us, it, it works really well. Right, because it's not just an intellectual understanding. We're also empathizing with it we feel we were connected to it because we yeah. saw how how important it was that he think this way yeah and and the thing i love about it is we still don't know like we haven't gotten our lab rat reveal yet we have no nothing like negative about chris that we've learned yet right we just know he's been through this terrible stuff and now he's really protective of the truth of it we, we don't we don't understand why yet so i, I love that we're, we're revealing information without giving the full thing yet and and why that works so well um we still don't we like at this point in the chapter i i did not like suspect chris yet you know yeah i agree yeah me me neither so jumping back to feral mutant baby the feral mutant baby begins to grow and obeys its second imperative migrate (laughs) And, and once again i feel like i'm repeating myself a lot here but i love how the text conveys information here that the point of view can't. Um, we want to get this idea across that Chris travels a long, long, long way in in this second imperative. He want he's migrating and he's going very, very far to get to where he wants to go. How how does one depict that when your point of view character uh, has no concept of time, doesn't understand what time is, doesn't understand what 
what distances can't just relay that information to us via those things. How do we do it? How do we solve that problem? And Wildbow solves that problem in breaths, 500 breaths of walking, 300 breaths of sitting, resting, then 400 breaths of walking, 400 breaths of sitting, resting, 200 breaths to walk, 600 breaths to sit. So not only does this convey the amount of distance traveled, it also conveys like the slow deterioration, right? I love I love the shift in breaths walked to breaths rested. Like it, it's doing so much. It's so simple and it's like conveys exactly what it needs to. And and that's like that's why I love it. That's this is this is great writing. I enjoy it so much. Yeah, it didn't even occur to me that this was like a clever workaround to avoid having to use units of measure. Yeah. But like it even though that didn't occur to me, I still felt it as like yep this is how this creature would would think and yep. um yeah just it's it gets you in the gets you in it in chris's head you know feral mutant baby's head even even more strongly yeah yeah uh so he almost dies due to eating the wrong things and due to malnutrition he manages to get to an open space where he can be found and then he's rescued by members of a human caravan uh fleeing old morning the humans clearly seem to recognize him as a child at this point uh, they take him close enough to his desired destination, and then he escapes and makes it to the, to the lab. The automated defenses kill the people who have followed him, and then he begins to obey the third imperative, download. And now he begins to remember. He understands what's going on, and he remembers his life as Lab Rat. The paranoia of Lab Rat remembering the birdcage blends with the terror of Feral Mutant Baby. And there it is, Matt. There is the big reveal. Um, before we move on with this, we have to give credit where it's due um, because this whole thing was kind of guessed by uh, I think it was Reddit user Ginger and Time was their name. Um, and she kind of laid out this really complex thing that I think you and I talked about a few months ago, probably. Yeah. And it was the, it, it was it was the type of thing that was like detailed and made so much sense that my response was immediately um no, that can't be right. <laughs> right. Like that's, it's like that's that's too that's too good for it to actually be that. Um, and I I just I think it's it, it, like credit like that. That is the most thorough um, and well researched and well explained uh, guess that turned out to be true. I've seen since I've been part of this community and it was it was great. So before we move on, we have to just have to say that was incredible. Good, good sleuthing, uh, Ginger and Time. That was excellent. Yeah. I mean, it makes a tremendous amount of sense. Even when I read it, I was like, huh, I, I, <laughs> I can't think of a single like thing to nitpick about that. Yeah. And, yeah. um, I, you know, I, I kept an open mind. Like I didn't say like, oh yeah, that must be it. Um, part of me might have, but you know, it, it was, it was, a pretty amazing catch and it's the kind of theory where it's it's based on things where you're like how did you remember that and think to connect it <laughs> right right i mean there's so much there right like this this little tiny moment where lab rat throws a, a thing off the edge of the oil rig right before yeah. he dies or rather taylor helps him throw a thing off the oil rig right before he dies um yeah just that from that little plot element all the way to here and now Yep. So what, what I mean, what did you think about this reveal? Like, did, did you I mean, we both knew about this theory. Um, did were you shocked? Like, how do you how do you what, what did you think about it? Well, I mean, shocked. I think shocked is the wrong word because I had seen that theory. Mm -hmm. um, but but it was like. 
um, I don't know. It's hard to, it's hard to explain it. It's, it, there's an excitement. There's, um, a, a ton of sympathy that comes along with kind of understanding what this creature is going through. I mean, honestly, like you realize, I think because I had seen this theory, I was thinking, you know, okay, he's in a big pile of breed bugs and there's a quarantine happening. This is probably the aftermath of the oil rig. Like I, I, I actually, you know, I, I made that oh, really? connection to the theory. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but, um, like, I don't remember exactly at what point I did. Um, See, uh, there's I think there's a lot of people that say and there's people that have said that this about uh, we've got worm as well, that um, like theories like this that end up being true hurt the reading experience. And I I disagree because like the the experience of like starting to put the pieces together and realize that this theory was right was probably just as as enjoyable to me as like if it had been a total shock, right? Like, like for me, the moment where, where Chris like goes is in a lab, like, like the, the text makes it clear that the place he's just gone into is some sort of lab. And then you like, your brain just starts going, wait, hold on. Yeah. (laughs) And then like more stuff keeps happening and then stuff starts to build on top of each other. And you're like, wait, hold, wait, 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 wait. Uh, Oh God. And that's such a wonderfully pleasurable experience that like, I, 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 I didn't care that like I put the pieces together 10 seconds before or or I realized that the theory was true 10 seconds before it was actually revealed. Like, I think that's just as enjoyable as a writing experience as as being completely shocked to me. Yeah, um, I, I know people are different about that kind of thing. Yeah, but. people are different. But like I, I think I've mentioned before, I mean, it, I don't know about on this podcast, but I mentioned before, like the Preston Jacobs Game of Thrones Song of Ice mm-hmm. and Fire YouTube channel and how like. Like, I just love, like, theory crafting and thinking about little minutiae. And, like, I get a- as much enjoyment from that as I do from, you know, books, you know. So <laughs> so yeah. it, it I, I would never say, like, oh, man, I wish I hadn't seen that theory. Because, like, okay, well, maybe I shouldn't be looking at the subreddit if I don't like <laughs> thinking about theories. Fair, fair. So I, I the thing that I love about this and I was thinking about Chris as a character, you know, before this reveal and after this reveal. And I, I got to thinking about his power. And, and, you know, one thing that I realized when thinking about superpowers in this world is that while the reasonings behind why the powers are there and like the the traumatic element that links to the power is complex. The, the functional operation of the power itself is usually pretty straightforward, right? Like, like Taylor controls bugs. Uh, Victoria has a force field and can fly. Like these are not complex things. They're not difficult to understand. And Chris, when you think about it was always kind of, um, an anomaly in that regard. His power seemed like, nebulous and complex and difficult to understand in a way that no one else's did. Um, and, and it makes a lot of sense in retrospect that it is that way because it was all bullshit and he was just lying. And I I think that's such a, like a inventive way to do things that you like, it's one of those things where the truth is right there in front of you. You're just not paying attention. Like if, if you, if you really just sat down and compared this power to, 
everyone else's power, you would see how weird it is in its explanation. Um, like I remember like so many people were trying to do like the, the emotion wheels and trying to understand how this all worked out and, 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 and no one could really crack it because it didn't make any sense. And that's very different from the way powers are normally described in this story. Right. I mean, and I think it's awesome because clearly Chris had constructed this elaborate ruse where it was him who was pushing this idea of like, oh, yeah, it's yeah. all an emotion cycle <laughs> right, that, right. that I'm obligated to follow because that's how the changer power works. And, you know, why does this power mess you up, you know, physically? That doesn't make sense. Well, it's it's weird. And yeah, I don't know. And just, I'm not going to tell just, you. It just does it. Yeah. yeah. Don't don't worry about it. Yeah, it's not because I don't have enough test subjects to test my formulas on before I use them. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I agree with all of that. So, Feral Mutant Baby finds that um, as it realizes what's happening, as it realizes that it's Lab Rat, uh, it says he didn't want to be that him himself. He'd spent a long, long time not wanting to be himself, but now it was imperative. Yeah, and, and this is, I think, starting to lay the groundwork for this understanding that while Chris is Lab Rat, Chris is not Lab Rat, right? Like, yeah. like, and we do this as soon as the reveal comes. So we've got this big reveal, and then we almost immediately say, well, hold on, not quite. And we'll dive into this a bit more later, but... but um, I think it's very important that we we set out to establish this right away. And I think that, that that's why the text does it here is start start to immediately establish this is not what he wants. It's just what he feels like he has to do. Right. And yeah, as you say, this ties very much into specifically Ashley, who we've got a very deep understanding of. So, yeah, kind yeah. of have that preloaded this idea of like, yeah, she's she's Ashley, but she's also not entirely Ashley. Yeah. Well, and that's. <laughs> I guess we'll get into that in a second. Um, so yeah. I'll hold that thought. But yeah, the so many of Chris's stuff is preloaded because of our our understanding of the rest of the, the team breakthrough. Yeah, right. So jumping forward in time again, Chris squares off with Jessica. Jessica challenges Chris on lying to the group about his background, and he defends his decisions with characteristic paranoid rationality. He names several birdcage prisoners who have either died or not been truly given a second chance in his estimation. He doesn't think society will actually let him off the hook if they know who he really is. Yeah, so I think so. First, the big thing that this does is truly reveal to us that Jessica um, knew and knew everything. Jessica knew who Chris really was and Jessica made the decision to keep that secret for him. Um, keep it from presumably just about everyone, right? Um, there's no real indication of how many people knew about this, but it was probably a, a rather limited amount of people. Mm -hmm. So finally we get the clarity on what Jessica's big mistake was. She thought she had a handle on this. Um, she thought she could put people around Chris. She could construct this team that um, it turns out was put together to like, because people had similar problems, like like the two personalities at war inside them that's going on with Capricorn, the dreams um, that Chris is having to go along with Ashley, the the the, the monster inside you that is Feta, the the dark past that is Rain and then both Rain and Kenzie are tinkers. So like it's like this this group constructed around each other. And that's what I meant about um, how we're primed for all this stuff, because yeah. th this is this is things that all of our characters have been going through throughout the story and Chris is kind of 
in a way going through all of them. Yeah, I mean, even Victoria had this had this this complex where her agency was taken away from her from from by someone who took control of her body and her mind and yeah. did, did with it as they wanted. Which you know, if you see um, Labrat as a distinct person from Chris, then Labrat is is the Amy to you know Chris's Victoria in this situation. So yeah, it's it's I mean almost like I almost want to say that we should have figured this out. Like if you just draw, if you look <laughs> at that, if you look at that seating chart, you know, uh, the seating chart that uh, I mean, the seating chart takes on a whole new meaning now, actually, because it's like. What do these people have in common with each other? Hmm. Well, that's interesting. They all have they all have something in common with each other. But like now, it's clear that Chris goes in the middle of the seating chart. <laughs> right, Chris right. is the center of the Venn diagram. And I, I loved that. I, I remember distinctly us having a conversation about this and how all these characters linked up. And our our when we got to Chris, we were just like, well, we don't. I don't, I don't know where to put him because yeah. um, we didn't know. And and so when you think about you know the, the structure of the narrative, why. We waited until arc 10 to get to the Chris reveal. I think it's it's for that exact reason that. Chris is the encapsulation of a lot of the themes we've been talking about, a lot of the things we've been exploring throughout this book, and I think we needed to sufficiently explore them in other characters before we turned to to deal with it in him. Um, and so it makes a lot of sense that we held this reveal for just as long as we did, because we needed to we need to understand these themes and we need to see how different people reacted to them in order to understand Chris on a complicated level, mm-hmm. because he is a compli- complicated character. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we get to the point in this discussion where Chris explains why he re- reinvented himself as a changer. The way I see it, half of the parahumans out there are doing it wrong. They aren't protecting themselves. They aren't making the right moves. They aren't optimizing. And optimizing has to start with staying alive and keeping from being exploited, which they are all really fucking bad at. I mean, touche. <laughs> yeah. Like, he's not exactly wrong. I mean, what's funny, it, like, like, I just, I've always loved Chris. And to see him, like, thinking this way this is such a munchkin attitude right like i just have such a sweet spot a soft spot for munchkin characters who are like yeah who are like clearly all of you are are being just complete saps and you're just going along with with the plot can't you see that there are rules of this game <laughs> that can be exploited which is you know kind of been in the background of this whole thing where where you know there's there's all these nebulous power elements of broken triggers and, and clusters and stuff where it's yeah. like there's a lot of room for optimization if one is so inclined sure yeah so yamada makes it clear to us and to chris uh that to say chris is lab rat is not true as you mentioned before um it's not quite that defined chris is what she says and you know she kind of points out he has his own varied interests and he acts like a teenager at times as we've seen yeah we've been talking about that through the entire book right matt we've been and and it confused us throughout the entire book because we were like, OK, sometimes this kid sounds just like a normal teenager. He talks the exact same way someone of his age would talk. Um, it makes a lot of sense. Sometimes he says things and has references that sound like they're coming from a person that's so much older than him. And why is this? And it's because he's both. Yeah. <laughs> And I, I like the thing that I particularly love about this passage is how the text like we've, we've been setting this up throughout the book. But in this moment where we're 
discussing these things head on, we kind of see him pass in and out of both. Like, like we were talking about how he's like going through the list of people that haven't really gotten second chances and he's using very like adult type of wording, right? Like, like he's talking about the lovely Miss Webb. And it's just like, it's such a thing that a teen, like a, a 13 year old would never say, like they'd never describe a person that way. But then he's like, whining about the internet at the place he lives and how all the other kids are bad at video games. And he says things like they suck, they suck at the game and it sucks here. And it's like, that's such a teenage, like a 13 year old kid thing to do. And we're seeing both within the same section, the same area of the story. And I just, I, I love that to reinforce the, the point that Yamada is making, the text lines up with that. Yeah. Right. And, you know, as we mentioned earlier, this, this is kind of being doled out to us gradually. We don't we don't fully understand it yet, but I think I think by the end we certainly do, and we're about to get it even more in, in a minute here. Um, oh yeah, I, I just love this uh, quote um, where Yamada is basically pointing all this out to him, and he says, "We could debate it all session." Oh wait, we have multiple times. Yeah, uh, you can just imagine it in his sarcastic asshole voice. Yeah, like a teen, right? That yeah. feels like the 13-year-old version, right? Yeah. Like, oh, wait, we did this already. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and then the section ends with Jessica implying that she knows why he really changes form. What, one of the things that I love that this novel is, is doing is we talked about this earlier when we got to Jessica's big mistake, even though we didn't understand what the mistake was. She was seen as this perfect character in Worm who could do no wrong. Um, and we're not holding back here. Like she fucked up. She knew all this stuff and she thought she could handle it. She thought she could control it. She thought like she wanted him. And, and it comes from a noble place, right? Like she she saw Labrat. She saw Chris as this distinct person. And and maybe I can help him get better. And she honestly believed that this was the best way to do that. She was probably wrong. And you feel bad for her, but I like that we're seeing her as this, this fallible person. Like she, she, she messed up here and now things are happening. Yeah. You know, and, and her getting taken out of the picture, I, I, I haven't gone back and looked at it, but like, it seems like she probably got taken out of the picture pretty much right around the time where if she had been around, she would have said something, you know, right. it, yeah. it was almost going to cross the line into, okay, I can't let this go any further which is, uh, you know, that perfect, right? Yeah, I think you're right. I, I kind of can't wait for the Jessica comes back moment yeah. where she's like, okay, Victoria, yeah. we got to talk about Chris. Oh, um, yeah. so he uh, went to another, yeah. he's, he's ruling a planet. Yeah, he's he's de facto ruling a planet. And yeah, good job. <laughs> I gave you one with, job, Victoria. With infinite, infinite test subjects. Yeah, yeah, Jessica, you gave me one job, but you didn't tell me what the job was. <laughs> yep. Uh, so we check back in with Feral Mutant Baby. Uh, he keeps revisiting the lab, putting himself in the state of mind of his trigger event and downloading his memories. The clearest of his memories, uh, his most tangible anchor uh, to being Lab Rat, is seeing his sister in the process of torture murdering a young man. The event traumatizes him and causes him to act out and spiral into delinquency. Matt, family, huh? Uh -huh. Family's great. All of her family does such good things. Yeah, everybody's family in this story is so supportive. Yeah, yeah. So I want to talk to you about this trigger event for a bit because uh, where do you think, how, how do you think this ties into his power? And I think this this kind of depends on 
what our interpretation of his impulse with his power is. Um, because I think Chris is a person that, as we'll talk about in a bit, is a person that wants to turn himself into a monster. But I always got the feeling that Labrad had this impulse to do that to other people. And therefore, when you look at this trigger event, um, what happens to him and, and the stuff he goes through, like you see it as kind of like a person trying to make um, people look like the monsters they think he thinks they are on the outside. Like, like his sister is this angelic, perfect person that no one can see the, the horribleness that's actually inside her. And so he wants to turn people and to look like the monsters that he thinks they are. Uh, that's, that's my interpretation of it at least. Yeah. I, I absolutely love that. I mean, what, from what we've seen and, uh, you know, just to jump ahead, I guess thematically a little bit, Chris wants to change because he wants to change. He wants to be different than what he is. It's, it's not about, experimenting on on people and and you know creating yeah. creating minions it's not about minions for him it's about if he wants test subjects it's basically just so he can make formulas for himself um maybe i'm overstating that but that's really how it kind of feels whereas you know the first thing labrat does when he's freed and as we're about to see when he's freed from the birdcage is not start to work on an awesome formula to make himself super badass it's to make a whole bunch of formulas to spread out to everybody on the oil rig. Yeah. Yeah. Different, very different mentalities. And it reminds me of this whole idea we've seen many, many times in the story of like people's powers kind of adapting um, when they go through an extreme change, physical or mental, the power kind of shifts and, and adapts to the new version of the person. Yeah. And, and I, I think it's, I think it's also doing a thing that a lot of the rest of the story does, which is is trying very explicitly to make a dividing line between who Labrat is slash was and who Chris is now. Like, I think I think the text goes through pains to try to make it clear to readers. You cannot consider this Labrat like it's it's not the same person. He's he's different now. Yes, he has some of that in him. And I think we're going to talk a little bit later about the, the metaphorical thematic implications of that. But um, he is a different person. And, and you, that's the thing we need to understand before we explore him further. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, so now we jump into the lab rat timeline. The first time we've really done this. Uh, so it's gold morning. Lab rat and string theory are nattering at each other, uh, competing to see who can make the biggest difference in the battle. Just love their interaction so much. Yeah. Uh, we learn a little bit about who lab rat is as distinct from Chris He's a cell block leader who seems to have actually taken care of his block members uh, because he was the only one who could. Yeah. And, and again, just to, to reiterate what I said, we cut to Labrat. Um, what we're doing here is we're kind of setting up the reason for the fourth imperative that we're going to get to, which is, you know, take action and make it big. But we're also, you know, depicting Labrat in order to draw him distinct from Chris. We're showing how he's different. We're showing this person that that we didn't get a lot of time to interact with in Worm. And even if we did, that was a whole book ago. We need to remind current readers about who this person is so we can very clearly see that they are different from who present day Chris is. Um, and yeah. I, I just I just like I like like it's 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 smart and it's effective and it's efficient. And I like it so much. You know, one thing that really caught me was that like I, th there's a certain you know, you might have assumed going into this, like, okay, well, we're going to learn that Chris is like this uh, victim creature. And, but Labrat was just a total asshole, just completely irredeemable. He, maybe he is. Maybe he's done horrible things. 
Like, we don't know exactly why he's in the birdcage. We know he's, like, S-class. I mean, considering what his power does. Um, maybe that's the only reason he's in the birdcage, but I suspect he also did horrible things. But we don't learn that. What we learn is that he was a cell block leader who, like, took care of people in the birdcage and, like, helped them cope with their issues. And, like, either he's not as bad of a person as we might have thought or... He doesn't want to think of himself as a bad person or, or he's even when he's lab rat, he's struggling against the part of him that is violent. Um, all of these are possibilities, but like, yeah. I think it's very interesting that one of the few things we learn about lab rat in this bit is like, Oh, he took care of people even when he yeah. was in prison. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. It, I mean, it's complicated. People are complicated. And, and I, I, we need to remember that for, for both of these characters for, for lab rat that was, and for Chris, that is, um, they are not, you know, the one thing they say. They're more more than that. Yeah. So here we get the second beat of him thinking of his sister as an angel. Um, the so-called angel who killed his little brother, likely culminating in his trigger. The first beat, of course, was his sister being the angel uh, who would be believed over him if he tried to make any accusations against her. Um, Scott, is there a was was there a third beat to this? There, There is. It's. It's all the way back in Worm, Matt. Oh, yeah? Um, I had forgotten about this. I had to go do some research. But, um, yeah, in that moment where Taylor uh, helps Labrat get that the vial that, that it turns out contains Chris in it over the edge, um, he throws it, he misses, and he scrambles after it. And before um, before he dies, Taylor basically lifts it with some bugs and, and tops it over the edge. And And the last thing we hear is the bugs around him caught one word angel and so i mean the assumption there right is that that he's like i think the assumption at the time was he's like thanking her like help thanks for helping me like you're an angel right but there's a lot more context to this now right like this is a word that he uses specifically for his sister in very specific instances so i just i just love like that's a that's a book long tie back it's 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 wonderful um and and he could still be talking about Taylor here. I don't know, but I just love that that that's like the completion. We're seeing the completion of a three beat that was laid out uh, three years ago. Yeah. <laughs> more, more. Yeah. Five years, six years. I don't know how long. How, ago how many hundreds of thousands of words too? Cause right. Not even just a book, like, like books, books ago. And also it's, what's fun is that like, it's sort of a three beat that goes in reverse because it, is, yeah. it reminds us like, yeah, it's, I don't, I don't know if I can even untangle it, but the fact that, like, I don't think I remembered that. No, I didn't remember that. But when it was pointed out to me, it was just like, head explode. Um, yeah. Of, of yeah. like, yep, yep. That, I mean, <laughs> and, and then you realize, like, the fact that he uses angel, angel in this chapter is certainly intentional. So, Lab Rat uh, brings his work to the Undersiders, uh, gives injectors to Rachel and Imp. Uh, instead of handing out the rest of the injectors, he decides that he should be there at, at the last stand uh, at the oil rig. Another uh, another thing that kind of makes us like him, by the way, like a, a bit of bravery. So he travels to the oil rig. There he engages in wonderful repartee with string theory. Uh, <laughs> Lab, Lab Rat's plan is to boost the power of the 80 capes on the rig or at least keep them alive, which will be a force multiplier greater than anything string theory can possibly do. And as he's walking around... He sees a girl with a bug costume, tinted lenses, either symbolic, given the recent conversation, or the universe mocking him. 
He drew the equipment from his bag, then hesitated. Something more fitting. A bug in a box for the girl with the bug costume. Maybe she would be more comfortable that way. Aw, look, Taylor's in Ward. It's so happy. There she is. There she is. Yeah, doesn't say anything. No. But that, I mean, it's so awesome. Back in the lab, mutant baby Chris (laughs) rigs a trap for himself, causing himself to change uh, into a monster inside the lab and destroy the lab. This effectively frees him from the compulsion to return to the lab. Yeah, and, and we see here, I think this is, to me, the seed of this desire to change into a monster comes from, right? Um, we're going to learn the full extent of this in a little bit, but we see here that he escapes from becoming Lab Rat by turning into a monster. That's literally what happens. And and so monstrosity is freedom for him. Um, there's another part of this, a really subtle part that I really, really love that I don't even know if it was intentional. Um, but he in the moment before he transforms he he counts his breaths as he inhales the thing um he says 20 breaths as he inhales the the serum and and to me that's a callback to the counting of breaths that he did while he was in the migration phase and i think to me my interpretation of that what i think the text is doing with that that link back to the breaths is making it clear that this decision um what is happening here is Chris, right? This is this is not lab rat compulsion. This is this is pure Chris. The decision to do this um, is is him because because it's linking back to something before the lab rat stuff even got in his head. Um, and I I just like it. I just like it a lot. Yeah, yeah, me too. It, it's underlining that. I mean, that's that's why at this point in the story, the name becomes becomes quite vague because he's this amalgam of the three things. Yeah, I don't know if he's quite Chris yet. Maybe this is the moment that he becomes Chris. He frees himself from the imperative to become lab rat. And um, basically we get this point already. The instincts were kicking, kicking in another imperative. He was much happier with this one. Imperative four: take action and whatever it is we do, it needs to be big. And that's now he's Chris, right? That, that, that was yeah. the turning point. But there's st- like, this is what's complicated about it. Yes, he is absolutely Chris. and I'm not going to take anything away from Chris, but imperative four is exactly what, Labrat was trying to do in his last memory before he died, right? Yeah. Like in, in that moment, um, take action and whatever it is we do, it needs to be big. Um, this, and we're going to get into what I think the central metaphor around this is or what it, what it read like to me, but I, I like that the, the complex nature of it. Yes. Chris is distinct. Yes. Chris is not Labrat, but he's still got that Labrat in him. Like it's still there. Like he's not this person, but he's part of this person. Yeah. Right. Uh, and 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 even Labrat, like again, we don't know what Labrat did, but like part of me wants to say, Labrat kind of reminds me of of a bit of a a bit of a tailor, a bit of a I I I'm I need I need to take care of you people because you clearly don't know how to take care of yourselves, like mm-hmm. like and therefore I'm going to take away your control, like that's kind of what he kind of what he does you know i don't know maybe i'm i feel like i'm reaching a little bit with lab rat because we just don't I mean, have that much information he certainly like tests stuff on a lot of people that don't ask for it and and yeah. it's terrible that way so i think i think your taylor comparison is going to ruffle some feathers but um I, I see what you mean though i know which parts of those two characters you're linking together yeah um, yeah okay fair enough so in basically the final section of this chapter chris finds Amy uh he's using a form which is inspired by his birth basically which mm-hmm. i think is very beautiful and ties the whole chapter together 
uh, and we watch what happened after he departed from Breakthrough for the last time. He changes back into his human form, but as he does so, he feels his humanity drop away. I love that. Yeah. I love that so much. Then he tells, it's, go ahead. No, it's just this moment that like the first time you read it, you're like, is that a typo? Did I just, right. did I just read that wrong? Like, like as he gains his humanity, as he loses his humanity, he has to put on a towel to cover himself because right. he's become a human. And you're just like, that can't be right. That seems the opposite of what it should be. And yeah. of course it is. And, and we'll learn why. Right. So he tells Amy the secret that he wants to change because he wants to be pulled further away from being this, from being human, from being lab rat. So this is this is what I saw in this. And I think there are lots of interpretations of this, and I don't think any of them are specifically right or wrong. But I saw a lot of uh, parental control and oversight of their children in lab rat. And Chris, right? Like a, a parent, you know, keeps their kids in their house and raises them the way they want to be. They impart their wisdom and their memories on the child. And, and sometimes overbearing parents will demand that the children be exactly like them, be exactly what they want them to be. But as this chapter says, that's always futile. Like you're never going to be exactly like your parents. Um, and, and you can't you can't be kept in that lab forever. Eventually they turn into a giant teenager a monster. Um, and break free and set out to establish themselves in the world. They have their own desires. They have their own imperatives. And a lot of the times they have this, especially if their parents were particularly overbearing, they have this really strong need to be nothing like what their parents wanted them to be. They specifically set out to, to run away from that. But even in that, even in that thing, there's still a little bit of their parents left in there. And, and that's what I see with, with Chris here. I see a little bit, he, he's still a little bit of what, lab rat intended for him to be um that that's i think where we loop into the final imperative but he is distinct and he is setting out to be different distinctly different from him as well yeah do we have any other characters who have a lot of strife with their parents parents who are trying to make them like them and who are in fact like them in certain ways but struggle with that no i don't think so no, i think I it's just i think it's really just a chris thing yeah, it's just a chris yeah i don't yeah. It's not a recurring theme in the story at all. No, it is. And that's why it's so awesome. I yeah. love it so much. I love how like this, this ties like we still have we this is our second to last uh, breakthrough member interlude. Right. We've got just Feta left. And and I'm, you're really starting to feel the the team coalesce around, you know, th narrative thematic ideas. And it's very exciting. Um, it's things that we've been talking about and kind of speculating about and and discussing throughout our discussion of the story. But we we didn't see the full scope of it. And we're really starting to see the full scope of it and how all these characters connect and how they come together and, and why why they are so similar, why they are, are, you know, joined together in this kind of way. And it's I love it. I love it so much. Yeah, I'm, me too. Absolutely. We have to talk about. um the powers that lab rat has though we have to talk about the the chris's forms right because we learn here that chris chris's forms were taken were harvested from samples of the capes he was around um he says he got some of i forget which one it was but he got some of um a certain power from nursery and when he was around her um which also helps in retrospect to understand why chris always wanted to be around capes like he was mad when they weren't they didn't go to the warden's headquarters because there's a lot of powerful capes he could try to get some dna from there um 
he wanted to be in the thick of all the fighting because he could harvest stuff there and test his formulas and stuff like that. Um, but what this this forces us to do, and unfortunately, you and I don't have time to really dive into this because this episode's already going to be ridiculously long. But I want to challenge our listeners to look at Chris's forms and see if you can come up with which of the stuff was taken through members of his own team, because I'm sure it happened. Right. Like, like there's there's all these capes around him leaving DNA and, and stuff around for him yeah. to grab samples from. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think I've seen some, those. Yeah. Right. I think I've seen some, some speculation about this. And uh, I mean, it's really fun to think about. And I don't know if there's anything really definitive um, that kind of proves any particular connection. But yeah, it's really yeah. fun to think about. I don't think it, it's I don't think it matters in like like a like this is key to the story type of way. I think it's just a fun exercise. Like I think if it mattered, the, the text would have zoomed in on it a little bit more. But yeah. I think it's just a fun thing to do. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Um, so we we see Amy kind of reeling from everything that's happened. Because remember, this is right after Victoria almost killed her. Amy says, I don't understand it. Or I understand, I think. I just don't want to think about it at all. Which, <laughs> I mean, on the one hand, you have, oh, good. You understand. You You get it now. And then she immediately says, but I don't I don't want to think about that. And it's like, well, I mean, Victoria has to think about it. Maybe you should have to think about it, too. And and it's interesting because we don't really know what she means by that. And I don't know how much to read into the fact that. I think she either didn't know about the wretch or she might not have even known that Victoria was like sentient during her time as the wretch. Yeah, that's an interesting I mean, idea. Yeah. It sounds like a bit of a stretch to me, but but also plausible because when she comes to Victoria, um Victoria is not able to speak as far as I know. Um but you you'd think she'd be able to understand what was going on with Victoria by using her power on her. So yeah, I don't know. It's it, Yeah, I mean, she did ask her if she wanted to retain the memories. Yeah. And she specifically said. So like Yeah, right. I just I I just think she didn't fully understand the extent of it you know like yeah. like it, it, it's one thing to say oh yeah you were and and it's the same thing that i think her her mother does to her it's that like yeah you had this bad thing happen i i acknowledge that that was terrible but that's over now right so we're good yeah you're not that thing anymore yeah we're you need good to get over it right right yeah <laughs> and and i think i think to me this is i'm kind of understanding why um, seeing the, I think you're right that she didn't know about the wretch. I think she that she did not. She was not aware that the force field was still that way, um, and that was probably a shock for her. Right, right. I mean, that's that's. I mean, that's metaphorically the thing we were just saying, right? It's like it's like the thing that I did to you is still living with you, um, emotionally, but it also is living with you literally. It's right. always there. Yep, it's a reminder. Yep. So finally, Labrat gets around to making his offer to her. He will help her sort out the mess that she's made by opening the door for Goddess to seize power. And he will give her Victoria if she wants. Uh, but she says no to this. In exchange, he will have access to unlimited test subjects on Shin. He just needs her to stand aside and let him take action. Yeah, so he kind of like pushes and and prods at her with the things that she's most vulnerable about until she finally relents to the thing he wants um which I th she's in a very bad place i kind of understand why she makes that choice um I, I appreciate that she doesn't just say no yeah give me a slave victoria that'd be great right um 
so let's talk about Chris, though, because I think this line is what I was talking about earlier in the show. Um, the part that has, you know, turned a lot of people against Chris permanently, this thing that he said. And I agree. It's a it's a terrible, terrible thing. Um, but I'm not willing to just like write off Chris as a monster yet. You know, I think he's a more he, like we've been talking about for the last hour about how complex of a character he is. I would hate for a full chapter of complexity of understanding where he came from and why the way he is and what he's trying to escape from to just be, Oh, well he's just actually just a bad guy. Right. Yeah. I mean, he could be being dishonest there. Um, there's also the fact that like he doesn't like who he is and he's trying to change away from it. And this is him in his Chris form, if you will, you know, his, his, his human form Mm -hmm. behaving this way. Like, I wonder if he if he were in like a, a different form that could still speak, would he would he have said this, you know, and maybe I'm maybe I'm not quite seeing the way him and his forms are, are kind of interacting correctly. Yeah. But but like get he's he's he is actually trying to get better. He's just he was not open to the way Jessica wanted him to get better. He yeah. he is going to get better the way he wants to get better, which is with his power. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think there's a read of this that he actually meant it when he said it that I still that I think still um, means that he could be a character that we I don't want to write off. Right. Like, yeah, like, yeah, he's he, he it's like it's objectively an awful thing to propose. Like, it's terrible. And if Amy had had even said, yeah, I will do that, I would have. I would have been felt the the real need to write her off as a character and just say, no, you're never going to get better. But I don't know. It's just, there's, there's too much complex stuff going on here and he didn't like do it right. Like the, the, a character saying they, they are willing to do something and a character actually doing that thing are different things. And, um, I, I'm just, I, there's more going on with this character. There's more for him to do. There's, there's more for his arc to do. And I don't want to just, I don't, I don't want to sit here with this attitude of fuck Chris because he said this. Like I, I, I find him a fascinating character. I'm so glad we've learned all those things that the, the, the text has changed because of my understanding of him. And, uh, and I don't, I don't, I'm not ready to do that. I, that being said, I understand people who, who found what he said so deplorable that, that it, it, it really damaged, um, their opinion of him. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> yeah, it's it's I just I mean, you don't set up a character like this if your intent is to say, oh, yeah, he's bad. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. Think so, you're right. Um, it's it's I, I'm just excited to see where, where he goes from here. I agree. So now we go into 10.Z, the last chapter of this arc. Oh, that's not the end of the I th- we've been talking for like an hour and a half. I thought we were just done with the, sh- the show now. We got a whole. We got a whole other chapter yeah, to do. We've got half of the show left. Oh boy! Yeah, no. I mean, we had to spend that much time on Chris's chapter. No, I agree. I agree. Of course. So here we begin with another strange, alienating point of view. At, at the beginning, uh, a boy, a young man—we're not sure—makes his way into a hospital. He's armed. He's with with a group of dangerous people. He's trying to get past security. I mean, it's interesting. My first thought was like, um, just this like a fallen terrorist or something. Uh, oh gosh! <laughs> one of the group members has a power that makes his body feel fizzy and extends his awareness to the bodies of those around him. Yeah, this is, I think, an, another interlude where we open the chapter with 
some feelings of confusion because we're not sure who this is and what's going on. Um, but unlike the Chris one, I don't ha- I didn't have any expectation expectations on who this was going into this. Um, I honestly didn't even think there was going to be a second interlude. That's something that you said was going to happen. And I said was not. And you were right. Um, but we're immediately introduced to this kid and then this power and we don't recognize this power. This is something new to us. This ability to reach out and feel the the people around him and feel what they're feeling and almost be be them to a certain extent. And I don't think I'm alone in my initial assumption here was that this was this kid's power. We will learn a bit a little bit later that this is Darlene's power. Um, but I was like, oh, this is this person's power. And then when we learn it's Chris, it's like, oh, Chris can do things that I didn't think he could do. or not. Chris, sorry, Aiden can do things that I I didn't think he could do. It's like this this kind of a little bit of trickeration at the beginning of the chapter. Yeah, right, right. It's it was a fun it was a fun like puzzling out um, mm-hmm. intro. Mm-hmm. I, I like these, actually. I always I always like it when there's a bit of uh, um, excitement toward the beginning of the chapter. Like, who is this? Who is this? Trying to figure it out. It's a mystery. Um, I, I love that. So we learn a bit about the people that he's with through his sharing of touch with them, how they're dressed, what their hair is like. And then finally we realize that it's Aiden. Like you said, the people he's with are the heartbroken. Um, and we kind of, we sort of learn a little bit about their powers. We're not going to focus too much on that because like it would take a long time, but like we see glimpses of what their different powers are. Right. Um, and so, <laughs> so there's, I'm just going to talk about this all in one lump because it's sprinkled throughout the chapter, but like there's, there's a hilarious motif of just like bird stuff sprinkled through the chapter. Like yeah. he says their teacher is Miss Sparrow. Um, Romeo gives him the bird. He, he, he names his, his host Eagle chicken large. Uh, somebody asks him if he's chickening out. He has his hair combed up and slicked into a faux hawk. Um, I think I think you noticed another one actually beyond those. There's a moment. I mean, mine's really really minor, and I think I was maybe stretching a little bit, but where he's describing um, the power, the the fizziness of the power, and he describes how it plumes out. And of course, I mean, smoke plumes. But I think the origin of the word plume is, is specific to like feathers, and and when things plume out, they they extend in yeah. a, in the way like a feather right. goes out from look, a central like, point. Yeah. yeah they look like yeah. a feather, right? Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right that, that throughout this, and it's not just people doing it to him because they think it's funny. It's like, I think they're doing it in a response to his kind of borderline obsession yeah. <laughs> with, with that kind of wording. Because like when, when Romeo or Roman, cause he changed his name. Remember he's Roman now. He's not Romeo. Oh, is that right? Um, yeah. I, when, I, I, when, when Roman flicks him off, he could just say he extended his middle finger. He could just say he flicked me off. No, no, no. Aiden describes this as, as flipping the bird. And that yeah. is intentional. Like that is on purpose. And yeah, they're like this. It's sprinkled everywhere here and it's just delightful. Yeah. And I think it, part of what it does is reinforce the tone of this, which is, I think, throughout is much lighter than some of the other stuff we've seen certainly much lighter than the the chris interlude that we just got through um there's a lot of silliness in in this and there's an undercurrent under the silliness that we'll talk about in a bit but um aiden is an adorable kind of innocent type of character and uh i I think some of this this the silliness with the chicken motif uh help support that right he's somebody who just thinks powers are cool his power is cool in kind of a guileless way that a mm-hmm. kid would you know yeah he gives he gives a necklace themed around his power which like <laughs> yeah it's just adorable like you said 
Uh, so Darlene, the girl who is chewing her thumbnail and obviously extremely physically tense, uh, is the one who has this uh, sensation sharing power. And she obviously has a huge crush on Aiden that he's completely oblivious to. Uh, at one point, he grabs her hand to keep her from chewing on her thumb. And then he interprets her reaction to this as her being spooked. <laughs> yeah, and I think like the chapter before, Wild Bo is playing with the character in a certain point of view, being completely unaware of the things happening around him while also communicating to us, the reader, what is actually going on. And <laughs> it is so hilariously obvious um, that that like she has this crush on him. And I and I love I love that beat of like her heart beat faster. She must be scared. Yeah. I was like, no, 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 <laughs> that's not how things work. Um, I just I just love that detail. And I think, again, it, it helps reinforce that the fun parts of this chapter that you're seeing the stuff that's so obvious that he just seems completely ignorant to. Right. Yeah. I'm not sure at exactly what moment, you know, you you figure it out. I guess maybe it's slightly different for everyone. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, it's a. Uh, Aiden has to basically be told. Yeah. Uh, well, and one of the, the things the the chapter also does, especially this early part, is like reinforcing kind of how afraid he is. Um, he starts off this chapter calling things spooky, which is just like a wonderfully, you know, childish way of describing a situation. Um, and, and he's holding that knife, but he seems aware that like he probably won't actually be able to use it. Um, and, and that's that's kind of one of the things that I, I really want to talk about as we go through this chapter is this idea of funny cutesiness on top, um, fear and genuine concern underneath it. And that's kind of the, the two, the two tones that we're dealing with. One is very textual and one is under the surface the entire time. And I think it's, it's, it's wonderful. I enjoy it so much. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's, that's a really good point because he's, he's with the heartbroken after all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're learning a little bit about Darlene and I just like this. Uh, Darlene was the quietest in a lot of ways. She was the odd one out when the others were what Aisha called high octane drama mixed two to one with nightmare fuel, whatever that meant. He'd even <laughs> defended Darlene when Aisha had said it, which had made Aisha laugh way too hard. Like again, literally every single person in the world knows Darlene's feelings for him, except for him. Um, yeah. And like we talked about, this is fun. It makes you, it endears you kind of to the chapter and to the character, but it's also establishing his innocence, right? Like he is a child in, in, in the full meaning of the word. Um, and he's surrounded by children, but he seems more childish than any of them. Like we get, we get a point here where he specifically notes that Roman is only a year and a half older than him, Yeah, but he's their chaperone and, right. and there's no, like he is distinctly tonally, you know, textually, much more mature than him. Yeah, right. He's he's. It's interesting that like Chicken Little doesn't really understand like the fact that all these kids have been horribly traumatized. Like he he gets that they were all tested by Heartbreaker, but he doesn't really understand why that makes them feel like they're set apart. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's because they're all kind of messed up by the trauma, which he doesn't really relate to because he didn't really mm -hmm. have trauma. His trigger event was like getting lost one time right so yeah so yeah uh romeo remarks that they're being targeted along with the undersiders which i thought was interesting because it indicates he doesn't view himself as an undersider yeah and, and i think that kind of ties into this undercurrent of concern in this chapter right because we know aisha is temporarily out of the picture um, she's not there. She's off doing other stuff. 
we, we get specific confirmation that Aiden is loyal to the Undersiders. He is an Undersider. Uh, the rest of them, though, they're it's, they're not. They consider themselves their own thing. And, and and so you start wondering, OK, if the person that's supposed to kind of wrangle you and control you is missing and you are not loyal to Tattletale, really, um, what's what's going to happen? Like, like, uh, is there going to be a way to control these people if they decide to go off and do something? Um, if, if one of these members decides uh, to act upon some sort of feelings they have or something. Yeah. Yep. Right. Um, so there's a wonderful interaction here between Candy, Darlene and Aiden mixing preteen romance drama with a threat of fate worse than death superpowers. <laughs> yes, just it's adorable, Matt. It's just so adorable and, and ter- terrifying. Yeah, it's really. It's re- like that's that like Darlene is a fascinating character to me because I, I just you never like I think the text is setting up general concern with her feelings for Aiden and and it's cutesy in that he doesn't see them but again there's that feeling underneath it of okay well what if what if she gets tired of that right what yeah. what will she do exactly like that the and all of the bickering between the two sisters and everything it's like normal kids bicker these kids can do horrifying things to each other and to people around them when they get frustrated and also they don't have the normal behavior like limiters that normal people do. So yeah. And, and kids kind of t- test their limits, right? Like they, yeah. they're, they're bickering and it starts off slow and then escalates and they, and they push to see what they can get away with and pushing here, uh, could be bad. Right. Really, really, really bad. Yep. Uh, I mean, I, I just like the one-off comment where, where someone's like, uh, so-and-so was out of commission because so-and-so terror waved them. So like that's just a little <laughs> right. a little hint that like oh yeah they they use they use their powers on each other they it happens maybe it's not like common common but like yeah it it happens so you know you can't just it, it's not a hollow threat yeah and when there's that one moment I think it's Roman who says um, we understand Darlene more than you you might want to hold her hand uh-huh. and and like it's just like the, the, we never get any explicit you know reading of why we should be so worried about her but we are in the yeah. background like we're, we're maneuvering to make you that way right right so they find rain guarding the door to kenzie's room uh aiden thinks that he looks cool as hell uh he, he is of course using his scruffy looking hologram rain challenges the group and uses his doubt power on them so matt aiden thinks rain is cool uh-huh um in in this this facial illusion and then we go back to earlier in the chapter where aaron joked about how rain in disguise it was way cooler looking than regular rain uh-huh Just, we're, we're noticing a, a trend here yeah he's looks he's looks so cool as long as he doesn't look like himself yeah he just looks like a total badass wh- yeah. while he's wearing this which yeah I, I mean i don't know i don't know if there's i don't know what else there is to it beyond it being funny i wonder if it's going to go into like a serious place um yeah we'll it could, see it could we'll yeah see. um i i really like the use of the doubt power here and how it's kind of depicted because like if, if you remember we just kind of were reminded by the story that this power exists um i mean maybe it's only me that forgot that rain had, had this emotional power but he didn't seem to use it very often or at least the text in my opinion didn't highlight that he uses it very often so we've reminded 
our readers about it and then it's used here and I love how it's used because like they're all connected so they get a little tiny bit of it like presumably their general resistance to emotional effects as heartbroken um make them resistant to this power and because he's connected to them he's also more resistant to it than normal because it describes it as like a creepy a creeping feeling of doubt so small it was barely a thought christ crossing his mind yeah right i mean the other thing is like when you sense it happening to everyone around you or like when you sense some some shift happening to everyone around you then you immediately think that it's a power whereas if it's just happening to you then you're just like oh i'm suddenly feeling doubtful yeah that's a fair point yeah um so they reveal that they're heartbroken um i just yet another great rain moment moment the guy's eyes moved around the group tracking every member of the group as if he was getting his head around dealing with five people with powers which is poor it, rain. I mean, it's kind of funny because you're imagining him shitting himself over this, but also yeah. also kind of badass because he absolutely would try to to to, yeah. to defend Kenzie. He would. Yeah, it, it's it's a really it's a really good rain moment. Um, I, I love these like good character moments from different perspectives, from people who don't know them as well. So don't understand them as characters. But again, we do. And therefore, we appreciate the significance of the moment. Yeah, right. I agree. So Aiden tells him that Kenzie told them where she was, which which Rain does not like. How did, when did she, I, Kenzie, she like gets out of surgery and says, hey, Chicken Little, I'm here in case you want to hang right. out. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, she probably hacked something at some point. There's, there, there's one thing we haven't talked about that throughout this entire conversation between Rain and the Heartbroken, um, we keep hearing like muffled noises from inside the room like kenzie's probably like who's out there what do you do like yeah well and then the last thing she says when the door is open like i swear i'll get my revenge somehow so like (laughs) you you know she's she's just losing it like let let them in she probably knows it's it's i mean she she does know it's chicken little because she yeah she um, has she's she she, yeah she let them in basically yeah yeah. um so i'm gonna quote big chunk here you're a good kid precipice told him no aiden replied his eyebrows knitting together I'm a bad guy. I'm an undersider, which makes me a villain. The people you hang out with don't define you, Precipice said. It's the choices you make. This kind of gesture seems like the right kind of choice to be making. I choose to be an undersider, Aiden said. I choose to call myself one. You're a kid. You haven't been handed a lot of options. I still choose, Aiden said, setting his jaw. I'm loyal. Oh, my God. There's a lot there. Yeah. Um, Just... I mean, capping it off with I'm loyal is just the perfect like thing to say to rain to make this the best interaction ever. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's something inherently childish about Aiden's perspective in that. Right. Like, like I'm a bad guy. I'm an undersider, which makes me a villain. Like he's 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 cleaving very close to the traditional definition of bad guy, good guy um, that he's probably gotten from from how Tattletale describes things. And I love Rain's reaction is is very, very Rain. Like the people you hang out with don't define you. That's something that's absolutely Rain. Like he was thrust into this situation with these terrible people and he believes that you you don't have to be bad just because you're around bad people. You can do other stuff. And I I love I love it so much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like you say, Chicken Little has no real conception of what it is to be a bad guy. Right. Yeah. Like he's. The undersiders are so are so milk dosed. Like yeah. 
like okay let me, let me rephrase that <laughs> they, they 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 get shit done but like tattletale has sheltered him from all of that yeah yeah so he doesn't really have a sense of it and 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 he's like yeah. s- like genuinely scared of of the you know march coming after them and stuff like that so yeah it's um it's 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 wonderfully complex it shows his innocence and his his kind of ignorance to the 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 wider uh, idea of what being a villain is but i think you know i think his innocence and his ignorance towards this stuff matters and i think it's as we as we circle around to the end of this chapter i think we're going to see why it matters because it allows him to have this perspective on things that i think is going to be really important yeah i agree so aiden is surprised to see that kenzie's black and then feels bad for having had a different mental image of her this um you know how I've said many times that I'm terrible at like costumes and like, you know, a, a character is like an emotional nebulous blob in my head. When I read right. them, I don't actually see like the character standing there. So I in my head, I never saw Kenzie as like having a costume that like completely covered her skin to where someone standing in front of her wouldn't know she was black. So this surprised me a little bit. But um, I mean, what do you think? What do we think? Like what, what was what was the purpose for drawing this beat in here in this moment? I don't know. I just, I, it just, it seems like even if it weren't a matter of Kinsey being black and him not expecting it, um, I thought it was interesting to point out, like, if you, if you know, if, if you know someone in costume, you're going to form a mental image of what their face might look like. Like, especially yeah. if you're anticipating meeting them and you're always going to be a little bit surprised and, and thrown off and, and then feel like guilty at the fact that you're like, oh, you're not what I expected. And then you're like, well, that's a shitty thing of me to think like they that like, why would I have expectations? I just it just struck me as yeah. a very relatable bit of like of like feeling awkward because your brain did a thing that you didn't actually realize it did. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And and I mean, I think I think it's an important step towards them um, moving from two capes that know each other that want to be friends to two actual friends because we have this beat like he sees her um realizes she's black and then like feels bad about his assumptions and um gets over them and then they learn each other's names their real names and and this is moving beyond the illusion of capedom as as them as defined as their hero personalities or villain personalities and just aiden and kenzie yeah Yeah. i think it's it's important i agree so the kids now discuss how things are scary and dangerous now. Aiden gives Kinsey her presents, including books and some disposable cameras for her to tinker with. Uh, when he gives her a necklace, we see both Kinsey and Darlene react pretty strongly. So we're setting up a a, a, a love triangle here, Matt. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's a love triangle in which one of the corners c- could go crazy and really fuck up another corner which corner are you talking about scott (laughs) because because uh you know it's kenzie right so i don't i don't have to tell you which corner i'm talking about that's that's perfectly fine and i I love that (laughs) i love that we have these two we don't know much about darlene but we're primed to be afraid of her we already know to be kind of afraid of kenzie so yeah yeah especially especially how she can be with friendships and yep. with relationships and yeah i mean it's it, it's the scariest love triangle that has ever existed uh-huh. and poor i mean there's no center to a triangle but uh-huh well there's multiple right right yeah yeah i don't i mean geometry. i think i i think 
I think he just needs to get on his eagle and fly away and never come back. <laughs> just get above the triangle? Yeah. Um, so the conversation segues into a discussion of how uh, people need to work together, um, including Aiden opining that uh, Victoria and Tattletail should be friends. And basically he says, I spent a lot of time thinking everyone I know that's not a teenager anymore is stuck in the past. The others are focused on what comes next, Kinsey said. The fighting, the violence, the rule-breaking, the plots. Let them, he said. We should focus on the now, making sure that things uh, are sure okay when we're, I don't know, 10 years older than we are. Once I started telling myself that, I started feeling a lot better about the feelings that the meeting stirred up. Yeah, I mean, this is, I really, really love this. Um, and I, like, I, I love this specifically because if you go back to the very beginning of this arc, this idea of... Um, past, present, and future. Not only has it been a trend throughout the book as a whole, but it's also very specifically been like a, a framing device for some of the conversation in this arc. We have Victoria's whole argument with her mom in the first chapter where she's doing the past, present, future thing. And we kind of see that, uh, that that's, that's a, a thing that her mom taught her. But also after that argument, Victoria is trying to think of what to do next. And she says, the future was the future. And that future had an Amy-shaped shadow somewhere across it. The past was misery. The present, today, I could focus on today. We would consolidate. So the thing I love about this is, is we have all these characters. And they're characters like kind of in the middle of things right now, trying to figure out the best way forward, the best way to do things. And they all largely agree with each other. Um, it's just a matter of like how hard it is to actually say, okay, let's not worry about the past. Um, let's not f focus totally on the future. Let's try to live in today and try to fix right now. Um, it, it's, it's hard, but, but we have a lot of characters who are aligned in that direction. Right. Yeah. Um, I think I'll have a little bit more to say about that in a second, but first I think we'll kind of make our way a little bit further. So Aiden asks if they can be friends or at least not enemies. And Kenzie said she would like to, but admits that she's really bad at being friends. Aiden counters that um, they should just uh, try, like, try to be good to each other and to mm -hmm. other young capes. And then uh, Candy starts fixing Kenzie's hair, and it's just so adorable. That's wonderfully adorable, and you hope that you know it's not com immediately undercut by something terrifying. Um, it, it is, though. <laughs> yeah. So... Uh, just kind of like a broad comment about Aiden's kind of idea here. Like, I love this recurring theme in this story of individual characters seeing that things are just not working out and then proposing their own solutions. Like, we have Prancer's core of civilized villains uh, in Hollow Point. We have Victoria's cape organization. We have Aiden's be nice and work together idea. Uh, even the fallen communities are kind of a version of this. Uh, we see that we see humanity, you know, even on the city scale is sort of trying to do this where... Uh, Citrine is taken over as mayor because she thinks she has the idea. You know, she has the key idea that will be the one that organizes people. So yeah. e each of these people wants to make things better. But like when it comes to organizing people, they inevitably come into conflict with each other because they they don't share the same vision of what that's going to look like. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you're absolutely right. And and the thing that's so frustrating about that is I think we w what the book is kind of doing here is it's establishing these two teams. And, and I think they're two teams that have members on it that genuinely have the same goals, but they're two teams that are mired in um, their the past. What happened between them? Victoria and Tattletail are two people that are very much still stuck on what happened between them. I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but Victoria's focused on what Tattletail did to her. Um, Tattletail, when 
she hears about what Aiden did, says sometime in the future, we might have to fight them. And that's literally the past present future argument being told between these two teams. And I think they want the same thing at the end of the day. Like they, they have ideas how to make things better and they, and they, they want to achieve those, but it's that past and that future that are preventing the present from happening. And I love, I love that the undersiders and uh, breakthrough coming together or the, or the potential of them coming together could be seen as like a, a microcosm of the world as a whole healing. Yeah. That's, that's beautiful. I hope that happens. <laughs> um, so Aiden realizes due to Kenzie's remark uh, that Darlene is jealous of the necklace. And so he says he'll mark, he'll make her one, which calms her down. And then this seems to make everyone feel better. Yeah. Everything's fine. <laughs> yeah. And you know, he, he he thinks about like i'm not going to pull the whole thing out but like he's basically thinking about the fact that he this is what this is his role right like yeah this is the kind of thing these people needed they need to be brought closer together they need to be taken care of um he learned all of this from charlotte forrest sierra even from taylor so we're basically explicitly saying like he's absorbed this idea of like we need to consolidate organize and and all take care of each other, which was which is such yeah. a Taylor mentality. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean that that's the thing about like the people he references: Charlotte, Forrest, Sierra. Um, these are people that learned this mentality from Taylor herself. So so this this he 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 says Taylor had only been around for a short while, but had made an impact, and that's because the impact that she's made is is through the people that that he's now spent a lot of time with. And, yeah, and and then. The moment happens. Culminating. Yep. Um, And again, again, another great like rain being rain thing here because he's like the plan is to do nice things and minimize the regrets you have, which is kind of how rain thinks about things. I have a teammate that's talked about that. I wish I'd had the mentality. Kind of, sort of. That's not the main goal. What's the main goal? Roman asked. Getting everyone working together, Aiden said. (laughs) And this (sighs) is what I'm talking about. <laughs> this is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the dueling tones of this chapter. We have this like this this wonderful moment where he's talking about just bringing everyone like why can't we just get along? This wonderful moment, and then he uses language that is very loaded in this world it, to the readers. Like he this undercurrent of Taylor and and look like Taylor's goal I thought was always noble. The the goal that she wanted I think just her personality and the way she went about it sometimes could be questionable. And so now you're in this moment where you have him with this same noble goal. Um, and you can have conversations about, is this coming from the shard? Like, is it, is it the shards influence on him? Um, or did the shard pick him because he was so much like her? Uh, and I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to get mired into that shard human thing. I think he, in, in basic sense, he was influenced by her, um, whether, through shard magic or just through personality and wants to carry on this idea. And is the book going to say that he's going to go down the same path and succeed in, in, in it where she, um, she destroyed herself at the end of it or, or is he going to break that same cycle that she went through or is he going to just go down the same path and we need to be very afraid? Like there's so much loaded meaning behind this one small little phrase. And I think it, it, it makes you, excited and scared yeah and and happy um all at the same time yeah no i love that that that's that's perfect because i was I was just gonna say like yeah you're 
you're happy to see this echo of Taylor and who she was and the, the best of her, but you're also apprehensive. Right, right. this yeah. was not the best of her when she said this line. Right, or exactly. Thought, thought this line. Exactly. So, yeah. I, I, I hope that what we're doing is seeing um, someone walk down that similar path, but, uh, but get to the end of it, um, it with, and still retaining uh, who they are. Yeah. That's, that's, what I, that's what I hope we're going. Me too. So then we skip to a bit later. Uh, we come to understand Aiden's power a little bit. Uh, we kind of already did, but basically he, he controls birds with like spatial markers that imply certain orders and he can sense what the birds sense to, to varying degrees, not nearly as well as what Taylor used to do. Um, and he detects a large kind of slimy reptilian intruder and then he sends his birds, including Chicken Large, to go take it out. Can we talk about how amazing Chicken Large is as a name? Yes. Because like, <laughs> it's wonderful. And and the beat where like, like he has to use it just to himself because imp would get mad at him um is is really great uh-huh. um but like large is not the opposite of little right like right. it's it's like he's doing he's doing it to keep with the the l motif so like like if he wanted to just do opposite it would be chicken big uh-huh. but that's not what he wants to do he wants it to be an l motif as well and it's just so adorable i love it so much yeah i mean large large just, just the word, listen to it, large. It's just a funny word. It's, <laughs> it it's a funnier word than big. Sometimes yeah. the way a word sounds matters. Yeah. So, so Matt, I, I don't want to like uh, feed your current video game addiction, uh-huh. but do you kind of see his, his, how he controls his birds? It's kind of um, StarCraft-y? Yeah, Real-time sure. strategy-y? Yeah, yeah. It, it's Issue inter- a command, leave a marker. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because... Um, it's, it, you immediately start thinking like Taylor, um, I, I, I read like the first arc of the first couple arcs of worm again recently because I got someone started on it and I kind of wanted to like keep up with them. Um, and I, and it's just like, I forget, I don't, I don't know how many times I'm going to have to read this book before this like <laughs> sinks in, but like, I forget how she did not use her power anything like she can't really sense anything through her power except spatial positions toward the beginning of the story. Mm-hmm. She has nothing like the nuanced multitasking toward the beginning of the story, or at least she's not like aware of it. She can't do cool things with it. And she just gets better and better and better with it. And it's like, is that a thing that is going to happen with Aiden? And I don't know. I don't know. It would be fun. I yeah. guess that's, I, I guess I'll just say, you you see his power and you immediately start thinking like what else could he do by being clever with this by pushing on it the sensory aspect could he train it up the way she trained hers up by being blind for a while you know um all kinds of all kinds of uh, possibilities but uh I, yeah. don't, I don't know yeah i mean it's so funny that i fall into the same damn trap i fell into throughout the entire last book which is underestimating this power i mean we we uh, I, it was in my mind, it was kind of written off as, as, eh, you know, like yeah. it was just like, he didn't have that good a control. He, he couldn't control that many. And like, it just in combat situations, it wouldn't be that effective. And then we see him like take out a giant lizard thing with his Eagle. Like it's nothing. And it's just like, Oh wait, no, this is actually really good. And once again, I underestimated this damn power. And yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know if it's going to escalate to the level of, of Taylor's control because I don't think anyone exists in this world that is willing to 
to push something to that level out of necessity. But um, yeah, I mean, I think we're seeing the complicated nature of this and how he is much more effective and useful than uh, I at least gave him credit for at the beginning. Yeah, there's also an offhand statement where he says something about like all, all the birds within like miles can can sense his uh, his signal, mm-hmm. which uh, am I remembering that right? Because, you know, if he has a much, much larger range, then that's potentially a pretty large number of birds. So just something yeah. to be aware of. Yeah. So anyway, he goes and he talks to Tattletail. They're back at this kind of rural um, camp that they're hiding out at. And she gives him the third degree for going off to see Kenzie without enough support. She tells him they may have to go up, you know, go after Breakthrough at some point. So he shouldn't make friends with them. And then she grounds him. Uh, And as, you know, as she's leaving, he gets in a dig. He says, she wouldn't have wanted you to do this. He kind of presses on that point. Um, We know who we know who he's talking about, of course. And I kind of think he's right. Like, I think it's a it's a it's a nice dig because it hits. I think it hits Lisa right where it hurts. But I think he's he's right. I think the the whole getting together and, and teaming up with people and getting the sides to work together and not continue this. Like like I talked about, Tattletail is here fixed on the future. Like you can't be friends with them now. We can't be OK with them because someone might hire us to kill them in the future. I was like, well, that's a stupid reason to not join up with someone because in the future, someone may want you to kill them. I mean, you you could also just say no to that. Like it's it's a bad excuse. And I think he he rightly calls her out on that. And the thing I like about this is we, we started this chapter with this kind of innocent, ignorant, spooked out little kid. And I'm not saying he's not still a little kid, but we see a little bit of the underlying strength in him here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he stands up to her and and he argues his case. And I mean, one thing that makes him very much not Taylor is that he does not uh, try to physically assault Tattletail. <laughs> um, he doesn't like decide that he's going to undermine her and take over her gang because she disagreed with him. Um, he's just That's like true. He's just like, well, I guess I guess I'll have to work on it, <laughs> which you know. It's probably a good sign for someone whose goal is cooperation. That's true. That's true. Um, so she leaves uh, and he looks over her whiteboards and he doesn't really understand what he's seeing. But I think we learn enough to worry. We see uh, there's her notes. Valkyrie, colon, scared. Dragon, hid for a while, scared. Legend, Chev, staying away on long missions, clandestine meetings. Boogeyman of Cauldron. Of course, Contessa captured weapon kept up sleeve. Well, that's ominous, and we didn't know that. I think we yeah. assumed she just retired. That's much worse. Uh, Dinah Alcott compromised. Shift of motives. What's Dinah up to? Is she under someone's control? Why capture corner co-opt precogs? What is the threat? Why scared? Hiding in alternate worlds won't save us, so why avoid the city? Who or what is here? And that's how we end the arc. And and we've got we've been getting ominous rings about what's going on in this mega city for a while now. And I, let's speculate on this for a bit. I don't think we want to spend too much time on it. But um, why? Why do you what do you think? What do you think's going on here? And I, I don't think I don't think any of us can make truly educated guesses unless it's uh, uh, that person that guessed about lab rat. <laughs> Maybe they'll swoop in with something here. You know, but, I mean. All I can really say is like Wildbo tends to be very parsimonious, very, very good with foreshadowing and layering things in. 
So I would be really surprised if this thing that's lurking in the city isn't something that we've seen already, right? Yeah. But that said, like, you know, we talked about how there were a lot of red herrings in Worm where it's like you might guess it was Scion, but you wouldn't really be like it could just as easily be, Nil, be Nilbog or Eidolon or, or um, any, you know, I think there are other things. But anyway, the point is like, I don't know, Chris, uh, Chris and Amy, Amy, teacher, fallen. Um, we have mysterious uh, group that keeps like assassinating heroes and, and basically trying to foment conflict between heroes and villains. Are they related to this thing or is that just, uh, is that another red herring? Um, yeah. And I, all I can do is I can list all of the major things that are going on or, or could be powder kegs and, um, and say, I expect that it's one of these things because I don't think Waldo would make it come out of left field. Although that would be an interesting twist. <laughs> it w- I mean, I think you're right that like reveals are impactful because it's a reveal about something you already know. Like if it's literally just, oh, there's this new cape and it's really powerful and you don't know what it is. It's like, oh, OK, well, that's fine. We'll just yeah. I guess we'll just deal with that. <laughs> right. Um, it's it's like Chris and Lab Rat. If, if Chris if Chris's reveal was just. Um, he's some guy you've never heard of. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's sh- are you shocked? Are you shocked? Right. Oh, but okay. Yeah, like so. That's so. That's. I mean, it it could be any one of these things. It could be a thing we have not yeah. thought of on could, that list of crises. Yeah. But machine it, army, you know. But it. But I think it will be something that has been established in one way or another. Um, because I think you're absolutely right that narratively, um, it. It's boring. What, like, why why keep it a secret if it's not going to change what you know about something you already know, right? Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, one, one thing that's come up, I think maybe you've said this, um, is just the idea that, like, it's it's not powers at all. It's something to do with the fact that there's this concentration of humans. Yeah. Um, as things are coming to me, like, you know, we got broken triggers. Yeah. As an element. So there's a lot of stuff going on, right? And and there's also, it's also possible that it's not one of these things. It's the interaction of a couple of these things. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes it like way more dangerous in a way that's going to seem really satisfying in retrospect, but would be really hard to predict a priori. I really like it being not a cape specific thing, right? Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I like the idea of, the 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 threat here being not from the thing that we thought it was from yeah and um i mean it, it could very well be like i think the the broken triggers is is i think a, a big big open mystery in this world and maybe just more capes being in one you know concentrated area increases the rate at which people trigger and mm-hmm. they're broken and it's terrible and a mess so they're trying to stay away i don't know but yeah i mean i think it's gonna fit slot nicely into some of the things we've been talking about and we've got that that mounting anti-parahuman sentiment always in the background we've been we've been slowly building this stuff up in the background for a long time in the story and it is going to pay off in some way we're not just gonna leave the story without ever really you know zooming in on that so um i I like it being something around that yeah i mean even if none of these things we listed are the thing that they're scared of it, it is fun to kind of sit back and just just think over list all of the major uh, scary big things that are happening in this story yeah. that, that are definitely yeah. going to pay off. Like they're not just going to not pay off. So 
Yeah. Right. They are, we're going to see movement on all of these things, and I'm so yeah. excited. Yeah. All right, so that's arc 10. Yeah. That's it. So why don't you talk us through your thoughts on Polarized, Scott, because I know you went yeah. through and reread the whole thing. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to try to be quick here, um, which is, I know everyone's laughing at me right now, <laughs> but we're already a little bit late. But I don't have anything like particularly poignant to talk about as we wrap the arc up this time. Um, when we started the arc, I thought it was going to be th- the one where we finally talk about that anti-parahuman sentiment. Um, I thought this was going to be the moment that that really comes into focus. It wasn't. We're saving that for later. Um, I thought this was going to be Sveta's arc. Um, it wasn't. Um, not that Sveta doesn't go through a journey in Polarized. She absolutely does. And, and on my reread, I was really paying attention to the, the the character beats that she goes through in the story. She she starts off unsure. We have this establishing moment of the arc where she says she's not sure where to to set that line. Um, she's, she's scared about what happens with Weld. She finds strength in her friend, has this wonderful shopping trip. Um, she goes through a tough time with a reunion with some case 53s and then she meets Weld and everything seems to be good again. And then, uh, then she murders someone. Um, and, and like, so polarized wasn't Sveta's art arc, but it, it, it could be the first half of it, right? Like we still, we've still got to come back and, and, and finish, a part of her story. And, and like I said, we have not had her interlude that's coming, obviously, that's going to be something that happens. Um, there will be more to come with her, but, but that's not what polarized was centrally about. So to me, when you look at it and we've been talking about this whole time, polarized is unsurprisingly where the good guys and the bad guys, uh, rush to the poles, rush to the extremes. The heroes, you know, are pushed and they consolidate against all the villains. The villains are pushed and consolidated against all the heroes. But when I look at that, in the middle of all of that, we have these two groups. We have two groups that are leaning towards their direction, but not fully there yet. We have Breakthrough and we have the Undersiders. And in each of these groups, we have two people that can't stand each other and two people that just want to be friends. Um, and like I talked about earlier, will these teams be pushed to those poles? Will they be te- pushed to either side or will they find a new equilibrium? Um, will they look past the past will they not get wrapped up in the future and will they work on the present so when i look at that the conclusion that i come to is the fate of the whole fucking world could rest on tattletale and victoria learning to get along (laughs) oh no (laughs) yeah so that's gonna be a challenge but but i i like i like that that like you know another thing another meaning of polarize is things aligning in a certain direction, right? Like when you polarize light, you're, you're lining it all up. Um, and that, that could be what these people in the middle are trying to do, right? Like we have people pulled to the side and, and and I love that as an explanation because it's wild, Bill's classic case of using a word that means two different things, um, simultaneously. So we have, we have the two groups polarizing and pushing to the extreme sides in the meantime, we have people in the middle that are lining up and and directing things and polarizing the light, if you will, to all point in one direction and one way. Um, and the, that's the way forward. And that's very neat. And I like it. Yeah, no, that is a great word that uh, I, don't, I don't know if we even called that out when we were first talking about the word, the fact that it can basically mean almost opposite, but not quite opposite things. Yeah. So yeah. That, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So before we go on, there's one more thing I want to talk about. Um 
I want to talk about rereading arcs because as most of you guys know, our process for this thing is we get through the arc. Um, we do this episode on the last two. And then in preparation for this episode, I read through the entire thing in one sitting because it lets me kind of see the themes and how they operate arc wide. Um, it gives me a, a bigger picture of of everything that happens in the story and, and refreshes my memory of some stuff because these arcs are long and some of the stuff happened months ago by the time we're talking about it. Um, but I think after doing it this time, I really think this is the way other people should read the book too. <laughs> and, and I'm not telling you how to read do what you want, chase your bliss, do whatever you want. But, um, I've found that on a reread of the arc, you, you come to, it's not that it's not that you enjoy the book more. Like I still enjoyed the book on the first read, um, but reading it all as one arc, you appreciate it. Re rereading it all as one arc, rather you appreciate it more. You appreciate all the clever things that it's doing. And the one spot that that really jumped out at me on this reread. And I talked, I tweeted about this cause I was so enamored by it is the Kenzie conversation with the rest of breakthrough about Chris way back in chapter 10.3. And it's this wonderful conversation where um, everyone's arguing about Chris and you have basically everyone on one side and Kenzie on the other side. And they're arguing, no, he's this guy that he's a dick to you most of the time and you shouldn't let him treat you that way. He's selfish. He's just doing like he's he's wanting to be near power. And he's collecting power. And Kenzie says, no, that's not true either. Like there's more to it. There's more there. And And I think we talked when we covered it that it seemed like the text was telling us that both of these things are true. Like it seemed like the book itself was not um, concluding on Kenzie's being irrational here. Everyone else is right. It was kind of trying to be more nebulous. And it turns out the reason for that is because both of them were right. Like, like Chris has like, he has like kind of multiple personalities, like, like battling inside him and he slips into some form of behavior and sometimes, and he's, he has other ones and other times. And this is again, reinforcement to me that he is more than just the terrible asshole that said that horrible thing at the end of this chapter. Um, he sometimes is the really nice guy that genuinely cares about these people. And he's sometimes the terrible, terrible guy who is a jerk to everyone and pushes everyone away and, and is selfish and is just using them for his goal. And, and I love that, reading that whole conversation under the uh, the understanding of Chris as we know him now after his interlude, like you see how much of what, what the story was doing in plain sight. Um, the last part I'll mention is when Wildbo basically tells us that Chris is a t tinker. <laughs> like uh -huh. he basically tells like she's talking about uh, Kenzie's talking about Chris and she says, there's more to it. Chris gets it. I think he welcomes it, encourages it. We're different because I don't want it, but he and I have that common background. We've both nosedived into big projects that you can only really do if you don't do anything else. And we can talk about those things. That was a me and him thing. And it's basically like they get along because they're both tinkers and they both understand like obsession with projects. And it's just right there. It's just right there in front of you. And you don't think about it. Yeah. Um, you know, what you just said has made me kind of, I, I, I guess, yeah, uh, I think this is kind of valid. Is it like he, he might actually see her as something like his little brother surrogate um, mm -hmm. because yeah. I mean, it's, it's, and he also had this complicated relationship with string theory where it was like, 
they kind of were like a brother and sister. Like they were kind of uh, at each other's throats, but also yeah. there was like a kind of fondness there. I wonder if this is like a thing about him where he he's trying to take care of like uh, yeah. you know a, a kid who he basically sees as like a, a vulnerable person who who he can relate to. I don't know. Yeah, and, with, and I mean, going back, I mean, Kenzie, you know, says multiple times in this arc that she w- was slash is in love with Chris mm-hmm. and she's a kid and she probably doesn't fully understand what those emotions mean. But I wonder how he feels as a person who knows that he's both a 13 year old kid, but with the brain of a 32 year old man at the same time. Yeah. And how like if if in any way he reciprocated those feelings, how uncomfortable that would make him as a person. Right. Knowing that he's got this like that he's he's older, quote unquote, um, and the the complicated nature of that, like on the one level you understand that he pushed her away it pushed away those advances clearly because he didn't want her to get too close and discover anything but on the other you see that the complicated nature of it and right it's, and, yeah i mean one of the first things he said was like i can think of literally a hundred reasons why we shouldn't um, <laughs> right makes a lot more sense now um and but i think he's fond of her like genuinely fond of her though i agree i agree and i yeah. wonder i wonder if you know, him leaving the team and, and chasing after this thing is, is, you know, running away from that fondness. Like he's running away from being the human Chris, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. From being lab rat. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe so really interested to see where all this goes. Yeah. So the, the point of that whole speech at the end here is um, if you have time after the arc wraps up, you know, before the next chapter comes out, you know, reread it all. Just it's, it's a lot. It is a lot. It was a long reread. It took me, like a, a, a solid several hours to sit down and, and go through these all these chapters again. But yeah, you you see the you see the workings like I mean, we spend a lot of time studying this. And so we I think we see, you know, what we think the text is doing um, on a certain level, even as it's being revealed to us. But seeing it after the fact is so much more powerful. Yeah, I wish I had a chance to reread it. Um, before this discussion but after this I'm, I'm really inclined to to go back and do it maybe i'll spread it out over a few days but yeah um, it's it sounds really fun so i think i will it is all right um that wraps up the discussion of the chapters uh so now for the discussion question for today all right here's the discussion question guys 2018 is ending uh this is the end of the our first year full year of covering ward um, it's also happens to be the end of the first 10 arcs of this book at the same time. So this is a pretty good spot, I think, to kind of sit back. So today's discussion question is, what do you like most about this book? What what are you enjoying most about the story so far? Um, what is what is working really, really well for you as we have now moved 10 arcs into this story um, and probably have at least 10 more to go? Um, so just, just, it's not like a really in-depth, like challenging question. Just talk about what, what do you like about this story? Um, and we can, it's, I think it's a beautiful way to, to not only wrap up this year, but to, to jump into the next one. Yeah. And and to wrap up arc 10 as you know, a a nice round number, the end of arc 10 seems like a good kind of point to take stock. Yeah, I agree. And that's all we got for you this week on We've Got Ward. You guys are all part of this show, so feel free to provide us with advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's reading. You can reach us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or over on Twitter at gotwormpod. Remember, uh, we are looking for your feedback this week and these next couple weeks, so 
reach out to us there. If you let us know how we're doing, let us know uh, what you want us to see. Do what do you, we what, what you want us to do more? Uh, my personal Twitter is at Scott Daily 85 and Matt's is at Mordinamail. Yeah, that's uh, M-O-R-I-D-I-N-A-M-A-E-L. There you oh, go, Matt. End of the year. Is that my Christmas present? It is. Merry <laughs> Christmas. And if you're not already subscribed to We've Got Ward, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else in the world you can listen to podcasts. Yeah, and uh, we, again, we were late this week, and we apologize for that. But uh, if you want to know any changes in our schedule, um, we really do recommend you checking out Twitter because it's just the best place for us to to send that information out into the the internet. Um, you don't have to have a Twitter account if you want it. Like, you can't follow us, obviously, but you can just go like search our Twitter without having an account, and uh, you can see. Our, I always try to t- uh, pin the schedule changes to the top, so. Uh, uh, that's where you can find that. So if you don't see your episode on whatever you listen to the podcast on, whatever you subscribe on, check Twitter. Yeah. I mean, we recommend that you don't have a Twitter account because it yeah, does, it's kind of, it does not honestly, it's, yeah, it's terrible. It's, it's don't have a Facebook either. That's yeah. awful. Yeah. But just yeah. check, just check the, just check the Twitter page. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and as always, you can find this and all the other shows we do over at doofmedia.com. We're wrapping up, this year on the Doofcast with a talk all about Speed Racer, Matt. All right. I'm excited about that. Yeah. Uh, so if you like any of these shows and you want to support them, consider donating to our Patreon account, patreon.com slash doofmedia. You can donate a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. Supporting us on Patreon gives you tons of great bonuses like voting in our quarterly fan art and costume contest, Q&A sessions, access to live streams of our recording sessions, and our excellent, excellent Discord chat. And apparently a StarCraft II tournament as well. And our excellent StarCraft II tournament, which is going to be <laughs> so high level. Uh, <laughs> so, special thanks to uh, a whole bunch of new patrons uh, this this um, period. Andrew B., Oren M., Joshua K., and uh, Reisman at the $1 level, uh, and Tolotos at the $3 level. Um, thanks, thanks, new, new Bidoofs. Welcome. And new Doof Warrior, Asgar Zeigel, at the $20, $20 level. Wow, awesome. Thanks, thanks everyone. Uh, we, we appreciate it so much. What a, nice, what a nice Christmas present. Yeah, it's great. These are the guys that pushed us over the, the Doof Plays hump. Um, we appreciate each and every one of you guys and each and every one of our, our loyal patrons. Um, this is the end of the year, and we had such a wonderful year, and it's because of all you guys. And we, God, we appreciate it so much. Yeah. So much. I, I still, I still am continually shocked. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't it doesn't go away? No, never, um, ever. Yeah. And as always, make sure you go over to Wildbo's Patreon, Patreon.com/Wildbo, and donate to him as well because this is his world. We're just having a great time playing in it. We are. And if you cannot afford to donate right now, that is absolutely okay. You can instead help us out by sharing this podcast and sharing the story with everyone you can. But I'm sure you already do that already, guys. Uh, you can also head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and a review. Um, Apple, like, was deleting reviews for some reason or something like what? like we lost half of our reviews randomly one day because I normally try to check it like once a week. And I checked it and we were like, 
at less than half of what we had normally had. Apparently their database just exploded. Um, they're all back now, though. So uh, we do have a new review this week. We have a five star review from Janine who says Matt and Scott are two enjoyably agreeable friends exploring the garden of Wildbow's massive universe. If you enjoy deep dives into literary masterpieces without argument and stressful trigger events, this is the podcast for you. I finished my second listen of the audiobook Worm and then found We've Got Worm. The first few episodes were a little hesitant as Matt and Scott found their stride, but I soon got in the habit of listening to them throughout my day, traveling to and from work, and whenever I could during work. It's been about a month, and I finally caught up to the end of We've Got Worm and will be heading into the ward section. I can not wait to listen to the book and then dive into we've got ward much like arms master depends on an outside source of morality i use matt and scott's deep insights and extensive storytelling knowledge to decipher what the story means to me thank you guys for all your blood sweat and tears to bring to us to this podcast well wishes and affection from the west coast please keep doing what you're doing that is a great review to end the year on thank you so much janine we really appreciate that yeah i like all the little inside jokes yeah it's very uh, delightful. And, I really, I really yeah. like this idea of um, I use Matt and Scott to to decipher what the story means to me because I I like that idea a lot. Like we are we are of course telling what we think the story means from a certain perspective, and you and I just happen to agree a lot, but we still disagree about some things. Yeah. Um. But but a lot of people don't agree with us, and I think that's okay. But maybe like what we got out of the story can help you solidify what it means to you like yeah. what what we think the themes of the story can help you understand what you think the themes are and and i think that's the great thing about this kind of discussion is it doesn't matter to me if you agree with me about everything like it, it, it what matters to me is that um you think about literature and stories in a, in a way that helps you understand why you like them whether yeah. or not it's the same reason that i do or not yeah, yeah, it makes me very uncomfortable to think that I'm telling people how to feel about things. That's that's not it's yeah. not what I'm interested in at all. It's no. I'm just excited to talk about this stuff and think about it and welcome everybody to come along on that yeah. journey. Yeah. So thanks again, Janine. We really appreciate you taking the time. And thanks to everyone who has ever written us a, ra a rating and review um, or shared the podcast or done any of these stuff. It really, really does help. We don't advertise. Um, we survive by word of mouth. So uh, you guys are the that that mouth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Uh, all right. That's all for this week and this year. A reminder that we're taking off next week for the Christmas holiday, but we'll be back the week after for an extra stuffed episode containing the first four chapters of Arc 11, Blinding. Blinding by the light, red like a deuce, another runner in the night, blinding by the light.